Thank you, ma'am. No problem. Meeting of the Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. I want to thank everybody for being here and for everyone being present uh, earlier for the business meeting. Uh, I want to thank our witnesses uh, for being here today and, and uh, just want to make a couple of comments and, and, and move on. First of all, I uh, was pretty frustrated when we began our hearings last week with the uh, classified meeting we had the night before. It wasn't really classified. It just happened to be down in the skiff where after all the work we had done together to, to create a vehicle to weigh in on a very, very important uh, policy, foreign policy, something that is maybe one of the biggest that will occur during the period of time that we're in the Senate, uh, we were being faced every time we would ask a question about the deal. Secretary Kerry would say, well, it's either you support us or it's war. You either support us, it's war. You either support us, it's war. And, and uh, to me, um, again, I think everybody on this committee um, has worked hard to make sure that it's a committee where people take their votes seriously, not necessarily themselves seriously, but then to be faced with a situation when you ask uh, questions about the quality of the deal uh, to basically say you, you have no vote. It's either support us or war. So I expressed those last week. I also want to say one other thing. I had a probably one of the only real good conversations I've had with Senator slash Secretary Kerry in eight and a half years. About ten days before we arrived at the final deal and I know that people have all kinds of concerns and um, some and, and some positive expectations about what might occur, but the final issues of PMD and the anywhere, anytime inspections, they were qualitative issues. And to me, they said more than just about the, the particular issues themselves, but about how serious we're going to be in carrying out these issues and uh, carrying out this, this, uh, this policy if it continues. To me, on the PMD piece, it was a total punt. I mean, I think we understand that whatever Iran does on the PMD piece, um, it has no effect whatsoever on the sanctions. And to me, it was just a signal to Iran that we're not going to be that serious about even carrying out some of the details. Secondly, on the anytime, anywhere inspections, that's just not the way that it is. And again, uh, Senator Perdue and I were talking on the floor a minute ago, there's the big picture issue of just uh, moving beyond and allowing uh, Iran to enrich, and for many people that's a threshold that people can't cross. But then there are other qualitative issues that I know everyone is looking at. And then you add to that the fact that just at the last minute we did away with the ballistic uh, convention, the ballistic missile sales ban in eight years, a conventional weapons ban in five years, and then we realized that the way it's constructed, we've done away with uh, the ballistic missile testing ban immediately. So to me, those qualitative pieces just at the end sent a signal to me and to others um, that we're really not that serious even about carrying this out in a stringent way. Now, let me say this. All that being said, um, I think we as a committee, we've got to figure out what do we do? And is it just a binary decision? Is it just a vote of approval or a vote of disapproval? Is it that, or is there something else? So 
I appreciate the witnesses being here today. I know both of them are very, very highly respected. I know they're going to give 180 degrees different perspective uh, uh, on the deal as far as how we go ahead. But I just want to thank the committee, number one, for putting us in a position to be able to weigh in. Um, I want to thank our witnesses for being here. And I hope that what we'll see over the course of the next period of time is a continued effort by the committee to figure out what is the very best way for this committee, if you will, as a group to weigh in on uh, a very important issue. Uh, is, it, is it attaching different conditions? Uh, what is it? But uh, I, can, I look forward to continuing to work with each of you. I want to thank our ranking member for his cooperation. And with that, uh, um, um, I'd love to hear his comments. Well, Senator Corker, first, thank you for your leadership on this committee. I think we're all proud of the role that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is playing on this very important moment in the history of our country. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think this committee is, needs to play a very important role in the review process. We're not all going to come to the same conclusion. I think that's pretty obvious. But I hope we would all want to have this process one that gives the members of the United States Senate and the American people the most information uh, in order to judge uh, the policy of this country and the decisions that we have to make. This is day nine of a 60-day review. There's still time for us to get information that I think is helpful, and we still have plenty of opportunities uh, to present this information to the American people. Let me just share with you day eight in my life. I met with Europeans. I met with an Israeli. I met with administration representatives. I met with our colleagues. I even met with ordinary Marylanders uh, in a discussion on Iran. And that was just one day. And I'm sure my colleagues are, are having the same type of opportunities. And I think that's a very helpful process. Uh, last Thursday was our first public hearing. And it went on for about four and a half hours with Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, and Secretary Liu. I found the hearing to be very informative. I learned a lot at the hearing. And I thought it was extremely helpful. Uh, this is public hearing number two. And we have two very distinguished panelists who I hope will get into an exchange of information rather than sharing our opinions, but try to find out information so that we can uh, better understand the ramifications of this agreement if we go forward or if we decide not to go forward. From the witnesses on Thursday's hearing, uh, there were some pretty impressive uh, uh, points that were made. Uh, first, that uh, this set of negotiations that started almost two years ago was in some respects a continuation of negotiations that took place under the Bush administration. And the framework was not that different than what we were looking at uh, back a decade ago. So that's an interesting prospect as to the international resolve to get an agreement with Iran in a diplomatic way. It was also uh, very obvious that this agreement provides, in writing, a lifetime uh, commitment from Iran not to pursue a nuclear weapon. The question, of course, is uh, are the additional restrictions and inspection enough in order to make sure that is a reality. It gives us time to gather more information about Iran's nuclear policies in order to judge its activities. Uh, and it uh, gives us a framework uh, to work with the international community. However, Thursday's hearings also raised concerns that have yet to be fully understood 
and raise concerns for many members of the United States Senate. One of those concerns is that why did we allow a violator of a nuclear uh, uh, policy uh, to be able to now legally enrich? That presents a challenge for us going forward. Will there be enough time at the end of the day for us to know if Iran is breaking out to a nuclear weapon to be able to take effective action to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapon state? We also question what happens when the sanction regime is dismantled. Can it effectively, in a timely way, be reconstructed if Iran violates the agreement to be effective in preventing Iran from moving forward? It took us a long time to get the current sanctions regime in place uh, beyond just the U.S.-imposed sanctions. It also, uh, that becomes particularly important because Iran will have additional resources and with the arms embargoes being enlisted, uh, lifted starting five years from now, it presents additional challenges for us as to Iran's financial capacity. The concern has also been expressed about the 24-day potential delay in gaining access particularly to non-declared military sites. I'd be interested as our panelists go over some of those points. And the issue about an arms race in the Middle East is one that concerns many of us. Perhaps the most difficult question for any of us to answer, and I'll acknowledge I don't know the answer, what happens if the United States Congress effectively blocks this agreement from going forward? What is the logical consequence of that? Our chairman has said that members of administration have made some very bold comments. Well, let's talk about what is likely to happen. There are, no one knows for certain, but I would be interested in our witnesses sharing with us their observations as to the consequences of us uh, effectively rejecting an agreement. And then lastly, Mr. Chairman, let me say, we all need to co start concentrating on the challenges moving forward, whether we reject this agreement or we accept this agreement. Uh, if this agreement is accepted, uh, there needs to be uh, uh, compliance. And compliance means we have to have adequate understanding of Iran's nuclear program. And that's where the PMD, the, the possible military dimension, becomes so critically important. And there's still a lot of question marks in my mind, and I think I know the chairman's mind and others, as to the PMD uh, uh, progress that will be made, whether we'll get a full accounting. Uh, we know that Iran is likely to use some of these funds for nefarious activities. Uh, if they're non-nuclear, what are our options? Will we be monitoring those activities? Will we be able to take uh, effective action against Iran if they increase their level of terrorism? Uh, what are our options in that regard? And then lastly, we need to have a regional strategy. That region of the world is particularly important to us. This agreement, if it goes forward or it doesn't go forward, will change the, reg the, the regional security issues. What are our commitment to a regional strategy to deal the changes that will take place with this agreement or without this agreement, particularly uh, what is our uh, commitment uh, to Israel's uh, security and the moderate Gulf states' security. 
Uh, and with that, Mr. Chairman, I, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Well, I want to thank you. I, I think, uh, obviously, the essence uh, for all of us, there's obviously all kinds of collateral issues that we have to deal with as we take into account what we're going to do at the end. But the bottom line is Congress put in place some sanctions. And we're going to have to decide whether the this arrangement that's been agreed to by the P5 plus 1, we believe, is one that causes us to believe we should lift the congressionally mandated sanctions that we put in place or not. And uh, so the two of you couldn't be uh, better witnesses for us today. We appreciate both of you being here. Our first witness is Mark Dubowitz, the Executive Director of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Our second witness today is the Honorable Nicholas Burns, Goodman Professor of Diplomacy and International Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School. We thank you both immensely for being here and certainly look forward to your testimony. And y'all can go in whichever order you wish to go in. Okay. Thanks, Nick. So, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, Honorable Members of the Committee, on behalf of FDD and the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance, thank you for the privilege of testifying. And it really is a privilege. I will address some of the major structural flaws of the JCPOA. And then I will assess alternative scenarios if Congress were to reject this agreement. First, the JCPOA provides Iran with patient pathways to a nuclear weapon over the next decade to a decade and a half. Tehran has to simply abide by the agreement to emerge as a threshold nuclear power with the following. An industrial size enrichment program, near zero breakout time, an easier advanced centrifuge powered clandestine sneak out pathway, ICBMs, and hundreds of billions of dollars in sanctions relief, which it will use to immunize its economy against future economic snapbacks, increase its conventional military power, and support terrorism and other rogue regimes. Second, the agreement grants Iran a nuclear snapback, which diminishes the ability of the US to apply even non-nuclear sanctions. In three places in the agreement, it, made, it is made clear that using snapback sanctions may lead to canceling the agreement with Iran walking away to resume its nuclear program. In short, it'll be difficult to persuade our partners to punish Iran for any violation short of the most flagrant and egregious. Third, the agreement effectively dismantles the US and international economic sanctions architecture, which was designed to address the full range of Iran's illicit activities. These activities led to Iranian banks, including Iran's central bank, being banned from SWIFT. The agreement erases these measures, but not because Iran has halted its financial crimes. And it's difficult for me to imagine a scenario where any of our most powerful economic sanctions are implemented, particularly the SWIFT and central bank sanctions, short of the most egregious Iranian violations. Fourth, the agreement emboldens the most hardline elements of the regime, the IRGC and Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, and his $95 billion financial empire, all of which will be major beneficiaries of this agreement. Now, many in Congress have profound concerns about the deal, but they rightly ask, well, what are the alternatives? Some in the administration say this is a choice between this deal and war. Now, President Obama has said repeatedly that no deal is better than a bad deal. In making this commitment, the president clearly had an alternative in mind. No president would enter a negotiation without having identified an alternative. The alternative is a better deal, an amended deal, and Congress should require the administration to amend and renegotiate parts of this agreement and resubmit the amended agreement for congressional approval. This should more effectively cut off every single one of Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon, not expand them over time. Now, amendment agreements should return to the principles Congress requested and that are contained in six UN Security Council resolutions. It should address substantial flaws. And let me go over six 
ways that I would recommend amending this agreement. Number one, the most important one, ensuring that limitations on Iran's nuclear program, arms and ballistic missiles, only sunset upon an affirmative vote of the UN Security Council. Number two, permanently requiring excess uranium to be shipped out of Iran, as Iran does for spent fuel. This deal does not do that. Number three, limiting Iran's enrichment to Iran centrifuges and banning advanced centrifuge R&D. Number four, requiring an inspection regime like we had in South Africa, with go anywhere, go anytime inspections. Number five, requiring the upfront ratification of the additional protocol. And number six, resolving the PMD issue in ways that meet the criteria that I outlined in my testimony. People say there's no precedent for this. Well, in fact, Congress has rejected or required amendments to more than 200 treaties and international agreements, of which 80 of them were actually multilateral. This includes major bilateral arms control agreements during the height of the Cold War. SALT I, the Threshold Test Ban Treaty, and SALT II, amongst many others. And the Soviet Union was a much more formidable adversary than Iran, with thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles, where the consequences of war were much more profound. By the way, the Chemical Weapons Ban Treaty, which reached under President Clinton, is a good example of a complex multilateral negotiation involving 87 countries, far more than the six of the P5 plus one. And there are many others. They provide a substantial precedent for Congress to require the administration to amend the agreement. If Congress would override the presidential veto and reject this deal, I see three possible scenarios. None is good, each is problematic, but each is preferable to this fatally flawed agreement. Scenario one is Iranian faithful compliance to the agreement despite congressional disapproval. In this scenario, Iran decides to implement its commitments in good faith. This would ensure UN and EU sanctions relief under the terms of the agreement. The president then could either rebuff Congress and use his executive authority to circumvent the statutory sanctions block in the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, or he could accept the rejection by Congress, wield US secondary sanctions, and undertake difficult efforts to persuade Europe in particular to join the US in demanding better terms. Scenario two, the Iranians walk away but don't break out. If Congress disapproves of the agreement, Iran could abandon its commitments and walk away. In this scenario, Iran gets none of the benefits, but as it has done in the past, Iran is likely to escalate its nuclear program, but incrementally. It would avoid taking incremental steps forward in its nuclear program to avoid unifying the P5 plus one, not to mention avoiding crippling economic sanctions or even US military strikes. In the third scenario, and this is the one I think that is most likely, the Iranians try to divide the P5 plus one. It's a messy diplomatic scenario. After a congressional disapproval, Iran implements certain nuclear commitments, but not others. In the policy disagreements that are sure to follow, Iran tries to divide the Russians and the Chinese from the, the West and the Europeans from the United States. Now, if all members remain united around their common strategic goal that brought them to the table, which is to prevent an Iranian nuclear weapon, a crisis can be mitigated. The key will be to persuade the French, the British, and Germans in particular to maintain the toughest multilateral sanctions and join the US in demanding key parts of the agreement be amended. Now, none of the above scenarios is good. None are ideal, but they are not likely to lead to disasters either. And they are better than this current deal. These options hinge on the power of American leadership, coercive diplomacy, economic sanctions, and the deterrence credibility of the American military option. They also depend on the private sector's appetite for risk, upon which the true power of US financial sanctions is based. I don't predict an immediate gold rush into Iran, even if Congress approves this deal. I certainly wouldn't expect such a gold rush if Congress disapproves of it. 
Mr. Chairman, it is better to test the strength of America's sanctions architecture now in order to improve this deal rather than try to test the questionable notion of snapback sanctions when Iran is a near-zero breakout, an easier sneak-out, ICBMs, and hundreds of billions of dollars already in hand. At that point, I believe military force may be our only option. And if war ensues, Iran will be much stronger and the consequences will be much more severe. To avoid this, Congress should insist on amending this fatally flawed deal, just as its predecessors have done before, and in some cases, under much more dangerous circumstances. Thank you for the invitation to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Nick. Mr. Chairman, thank you, Senator Cardin, members of the committee. Thank you for this invitation to testify. I'm honored by it. Um, I think you know that uh, I've been following this issue for a long time. I was Under Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration. I had lead responsibility for Iran uh, from 2005 to 2008, and I've tried to follow it closely uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts since then. Um, I think that both the Obama and Bush administrations have tried essentially to operate in the same plane here. Both administrations set it as a strategic objective to deny Iran a nuclear weapon. And both have been trying to push back against Iran's, I think, quite open attempt to become the most dominant military power in the region. Uh, and so I think that has to be the dual track strategy of the United States, to try to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapons power. And I think we're right to try diplomacy first to see if that can work, but also to push back simultaneously against this major expansion of their influence in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen. And it's within that context that I support the nuclear deal negotiated by Secretary Kerry and Secretary Moniz. I see clear benefits for the United States. First, it arrests the forward movement that the Iranians have been experiencing. They've been on for 10 years now. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected 10 years ago this summer. He's the one who cut the ties with the nonproliferation regime. They've been steaming forward increasing their both uranium and plutonium programs since then, and this agreement stops them, and it arrests their movement, and it will freeze that program for 10 to 15 years into the future. I think that's a substantial benefit for the United States that we were not able to realize uh, in the Bush administration, that President Obama was not able to realize until this agreement. Second, it does cut off the two likely avenues, and I know that Secretary Moniz talked about this last week, to a nuclear uh, capability, uranium enrichment and plutonium processing. Third, and I think here's the major Iranian concession, it essentially extends the breakout time, Iran's path to a nuclear weapon from what the administration is telling all of us publicly is about two to three months right now to roughly a year for the next 10 to 15 years under this agreement, that's a substantial Iranian concession, and that is a substantial achievement for the United States. Next, I think that the, th the sanctions regime have been strengthened. Not foolproof, not perfect, but the sanctions regime, the inspections regime, excuse me, that Secretary Moniz has been testifying about is considerably strengthened from what we were able to um, utilize during the Bush administration when I was in government, because we'll be able to have the IAEA monitor the nuclear supply chain for 25 years, and there'll be permanent verification and monitoring procedures by the IRA, IAEA under the additional protocol that the Iranians have pledged to sign up to. 
Sanctions aren't going to be lifted until after the Congress votes and until after Iran implements the agreement. I don't think it's going to be soon. I would anticipate that this would go on for many months, perhaps even into 2016, that we won't lift sanctions, that we shouldn't lift sanctions until we see full Iranian compliance with this deal. And I know, Chairman, you and, and Senator Cardin, you both uh, mentioned the possible military dimensions. We'll have to see what that IAEA report says on August 15th. I have a pretty clear conviction that the Iranians aren't going to tell the truth about much of what they did do in the past. So that's an important um, pathway on this nuclear continuum as well. Finally, Mr. Chairman, I cite another advantage. If this agreement can be implemented effectively, and if it ends up stopping Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons power, that will have been achieved by diplomacy, backed up by the threat of force, which is when diplomacy is always most effective. But I think just as we in the Bush administration sought a diplomatic solution in 2006, 7, and 8, I think the President, President Obama and Secretary Kerry have been right to walk down that path because we always have the right and the capacity, we're so much stronger, to use, threaten or use military force should that be necessary, but it's clearly not necessary now. Those are the benefits as I see them. But I don't think this is an easy vote for you and I don't think it's been easy for many of us who are studying it to determine what we should do. I see clear risks as well. I see a balance of benefits and risks to this deal. The, 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 the primary risk, in my view, is that the agreement will freeze Iran's nuclear program, but the superstructure of that program will be put into mothballs. And 10 to 15 years from now, as the restrictions begin to lapse, that program can be revived. And I would think it's fair to say that the Iranians will rebuild a civil nuclear program. The problem for us will be, will we have line of sight into what they're doing to make sure they don't use that civil nuclear program reconstituted to build a covert program, an illicit nuclear weapons program? As Senator Cardin said quite rightly, they have now sworn before the rest of the world they won't seek that. But based on their past performance, we can't trust them because they have continuously misled the international community. That's a risk in this agreement as I see it. An additional risk, which, which, um, which Mark Dubowitz has just mentioned, and I'm happy to be testifying with him, will we be able to reimpose an effective sanctions regime if there's a clear Iranian violation? I think, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I think the answer is it really depends. It depends on what kind of violation it's going to be. It depends on who the American president will be when this occurs, presumably after President Obama has left office. It depends on who's leading this committee and leading the Congress. So I actually think the most important thing to focus on, maybe this is the former diplomat speaking, can we implement this in a tough-minded, hard-nosed way? Yeah. Can we establish strategic intimidation of the Iranians uh, so that we can be assured that this can be implemented effectively <laughs> and the Iranians don't break out towards a nuclear weapon I think that's the most important thing for me to look at. To look at, So I see the benefits, I see the risks. In my view, we gain too much from this deal for the Congress to disapprove it. I think the benefits outweigh the risks. And I think the key question that members have to ask, I know a lot of people have been saying this, is what is a credible, realistic alternative right now in 2015 to this nuclear deal? One of the alternatives that has been bandied about, offered by both Republicans and Democrats who are critics of the deal is, 
We should have walked away at some point in the last three or four months because it was clear, this argument goes, that the deal wasn't going to be good enough. We should sanction Iran further, and we should reconstitute the negotiations and get a better deal. If I thought that was possible, I'd be for that alternative. That's what I'd be, because this is an imperfect deal. I don't think that's possible. This was a deal made by eight parties, the P5 plus one and the European Union uh, and Iran. And I don't think it's possible to go back to those parties, even the French and the British and Germans, and say, we don't like the deal anymore, the one we just committed to, and we want to renegotiate it. And I think if we did walk out, the P5 unity that we've had now for 10 years, we formed this group 10 years ago in the Bush administration, would fall apart. The sanctions regime that we've built up over 10 years would fray and it would disintegrate. Look at the French foreign minister, Laurent Fabius. He was just in Tehran over the weekend lining up commercial deals, presumably, for French firms. And most importantly, the Iranian nuclear program has been frozen since January 2014 under the interim agreement, will be frozen for the next 10 or 15 years. All of those restrictions would be lifted. So if that's the scenario, if that's realistically the alternative, that's a bad deal, I think, for the United States. I think it leaves us weakened. Mm -hmm. And as I weigh the costs and benefits and the benefits and risks, I really think the president's deal is a more sound and sensible path forward, not without risks, but a more sound and sensible path for the United States. Now, finally, Mr. Chairman, I'd, I'd like to say I think there's more the administration can do, both in testimony to the Congress but also in its own actions over the next two or three months to strengthen our ability to implement this deal effectively. First, I think very important, and Mark alluded to this and I agree with him, we've got to have a very tough-minded approach to inspections. I think the Iranians will test the inspections regime because that's what they've done in the past. They'll try to cut corners. There won't be a major violation, probably minor ones, and they'll presume that we won't call them on it. I think we have to have an unyielding uh, implementation of these inspections, these, uh, these uh, verification procedures, and call the Iranians on every violation. Secondly, very important that we reaffirm um, our ability to line up our sanctions partners, particularly the Europeans. I'm under no illusions that the Russians and Chinese will come with us if we have to re reconstitute sanctions. I don't believe they will. But I think a coalition of the United States, if, if, there's, if there's some violation that occurs in the future, a substantial one, and Europe, and Japan, and South Korea, and possibly India, India would be a very difficult regime to put together, a major hurdle. But I think it's possible depending on the scenario. So we need to do that. Third, the president, I would think, would want to um, reaffirm the threat of force. President Bush made it very clear that he was willing to use force should Iran get close to a nuclear weapon. President Obama should do the same. We should practice coercive diplomacy going forward as we implement this deal with the Iranians. Next, I think we have to narrow the gap with Israel. This public division between the United States and Israel is very unfortunate. It weakens us and it weakens the Israelis. It's obviously a two-way street. I would think the stronger party here, the United States, needs to take steps to try to get us closer to Israel. We're going to disagree on the fundamentals of this agreement, but put that into the private domain, not the public. Mm -hmm. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I think has been 
excessively critical, too critical publicly of our president, I think ought to take the same pledge. And it's very important that Israel's qualitative military edge be advanced. I helped to negotiate the last 10-year U.S.-Israel military agreement back in uh, 2007. We assured Israel's qualitative military edge against any possible foe, namely Iran, in the Middle East. That deal expires in two years. The administration could expedite that negotiation and send advanced military technology to Israel to make sure that it had the capacity to defend itself should that be necessary. I think that would be smart for the administration to do that. And finally, Mr. Chairman, President Carter articulated the Carter Doctrine that was embraced by President Reagan, that the Persian Gulf is vital for our interests and that we will defend the free flow of energy, but more importantly, the people and the states of the Persian Gulf. We ought to re-articulate that at a time when Iran is on the march into the Sunni world and we ought to establish a containment regime against Iran. So I'm advocating a two-track policy, advance the nuclear deal, but also contain Iran. And a lot, last thought, Mr. Chairman. Well, now, you've been doing the last thoughts for a good while, but we'll let you finish. I'd just like to finish if, with your okay, permission. Thank you, thank you. And I apologize yeah. if I've exceeded yeah. my time limit. Yeah. Um, the Iranians were complicit in the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut in 1983. They were complicit in the bombing of the U.S. Marine Barracks in 1983. They were complicit in the assassination of Malcolm Kerr, the president of the American University of Beirut in 1984. We ought to press the Iranians on these issues. The grandson of Malcolm Kerr is seated here. He's an intern on Capitol Hill for Congressman Maloney, Derek Vandenvent. He's here today, and that family deserves justice. I wouldn't make all of this conditional on the nuclear deal. I wouldn't link it. But I would make it conditional on any attempt to normalize U.S.-Iranian relations in the future because it's a measure of justice that has to be paid to the American families. So I'm yeah. for this deal. Yeah. But I'm also for a tough-minded way to implement it. Well, because of your prior service, we let you go over about 150 percent of your time. But we thank, thank you, you very for much. your fulsome testimony. And I, I don't know anything, uh, so I'll just add on to your last comment. I know nothing, and certainly our hearts go out to the families uh, of the four hostages that today uh, are being, uh, or prisoners that are being unjustly held. I have to believe that uh, somehow or another the administration has coordinated with Iran so that over the course of us considering this, uh, something may change in their status just to show uh, some goodwill. I have no knowledge of whether that will or not occur. I hope for the families something does happen. But let me just, uh, you know, you spoke to the inspections piece, and I think uh, that is what troubled me so much about the final two weeks in that, um, what we did on the inspections component was nothing like what we said we were going to do. And to me, it was a signal to Iran that we weren't going to be serious about these issues. On the PMD piece that you just mentioned, again, these are details. But again, uh, whether the sanctions relief is not dependent at all on whether they lie, as you, the words you used, or whether they don't. I mean, it's just, it's going to happen. So uh, I think you're right. The sanctions relief will begin next March. Let me just ask you this question, though. Uh, Mark Duberwitz um, created some alternative uh, scenarios. Um, he's right, I think, that Congress in some ways uh, has weighed in on previous uh, treaties, on previous agree executive agreements. 
Um, is there something different about this agreement? You mentioned eight countries. Sometimes we've had seven or 80 countries involved and we've intervened in a different way. Is there something about this that's different that, that would cause you to say no, Congress should not uh, create different conditionality relative to this agreement? That should not occur. Um, Chairman, uh, Mr. Chairman, I would say that this is a negotiation that has unfolded over 10 years and the specific round over the last 18 months. And I think if the Obama administration went back to the parties to the agreement and asked to reopen it uh, to renegotiate certain parts of it, I don't think our European allies would support us. I know the Russians and Chinese wouldn't, and I know the Iranians wouldn't. If I felt that was an option, I would want to pursue it. You know, that was what was said to us when we put in place these sanctions. I mean, we had exactly that testimony a few years ago and had people just like you, maybe you actually, I don't know, but up here saying, this cannot happen if we put these sanctions in place, we'll break apart the unity. But instead what happened was uh, the other countries joined us. And as a matter of fact, the congressionally mandated sanctions that Senator Menendez led and others helped put in place, all of us mostly, um, what, what happened was just the opposite. We actually forged something that brought Iran to the table. So you're saying that somehow the dynamic is different in this case at this time. Uh, yes, sir, I am. Um, I think I, uh, I supported the sanctions that Congress added uh, at some points against the will of the Obama administration. I thought it was smart, but that was just about American policy. Here you have this agreement, multinational. It's all bound together, and I think in essence, what the administration has presented here is a deal that you will approve or disapprove. I hope that you'll approve it. Yeah. And, and you know, as a, a big part of this deal is, it seems, based on the fact that somehow the administration sees into the eyes of the Iranians and sees something different than, if, than what we've seen. Um, you know, I remember President Bush, uh, unfortunately, made the comment that he shook hands with Putin and saw into his soul or his heart, and as it turned out, uh, Putin is, is who he is. He's doing, carrying out things exactly the way that he did in the beginning, and Obama's, the Obama administration has not wanted to provoke him, and they've realized that's not been uh, a good, good policy. China is doing the same thing. A new regime came in. There was all these hopes of them uh, conducting themselves in a different way. They've doubled down in many ways. So do you agree that a portion of this is us gambling, if you will, with the administration that somehow this regime is different than what has been occurring in, in previous times? And we're to believe that if we do this trusting deal with them and allow them to enrich and industrialize their nuclear program, somehow they're going to be different players. Would you respond to that? I'd be happy to. Uh, you'll remember President Reagan's famous dictum uh, with, with Gorbachev, trust but verify. A lot of people have been saying about the Iranians, don't trust but verify. You can't build this agreement, and I wouldn't advise you to vote for it on the hope that Iran might change. I think there's no evidence that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard or the Supreme Leader are going to change. They're anti-American, they're violent, and they operate against our interests. So the, the hope here is that the deal will go forward, their program will be frozen, but we've got to be tough-minded to implement the deal in a way that works for us. I think the inspections regime are stronger than a lot of people give them credit for, particularly the inspections of the Natanz facility, the Arak facility, 
and the Fordow facility, the two enrichment plants and the plutonium plant. Yeah, I don't think anybody at all is concerned about inspections of declared sites. I think people are concerned about the covert sites, and that's why this other element of having to ask, getting Iran to respond, which is on the front end, and telling them what you're concerned about, and then having 24 days is a concern. I'm going to reserve the balance of my time to interject. Um, Senator Cardin. Well, again, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our witnesses uh, for their participation here today. Uh, both of you did comment on what are potential outcomes if Congress effectively rejects the agreement. I just want to drill down on that a little bit further. Um, I'm, I will confess, I don't have a comfort level as to what would happen if Congress uh, rejects this agreement. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm trying to figure it out. I think it is clear, though, that the uh, sanction regime would not be as effective as it is today, that we know that China and, and uh, Russia and other countries are likely to do business with Iran. We know that some of the frozen assets are likely to be released to Iran. So they will get some sanction relief. We, we also can sort of anticipate that, at least in the short term, Iran's not going to return to a negotiating table. It would, they're not going to have confidence that they can negotiate with the United States, where the president couldn't deliver the support of Congress for an agreement. So at least in the short term, it seems like it'd be unlikely. The US policy won't change. We're going to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. We're prepared to use our military option, but our preference is to use diplomacy. That's always been our preference. So recognizing that and still looking for a diplomatic way to resolve this issue, I'm trying to figure out what comes next. It's likely that Iran will significantly increase its modernization of its enrichment. They have the capacity to do that. They will continue to to present that this is for civil nuclear purposes, but a much more efficient system. So rather than being months away, they will get to become weeks away, because they may not put together the puzzle pieces into a weapon so that there is no smoking gun that they are, broke, that, that they are preparing to break out to a nuclear weapon. Uh, but they'll be a lot closer. How does that put us in a stronger position going forward to negotiate a better agreement sometime uh, after the dust settles down from the congressional action? Or is my assumptions for a potential diplomatic solution wrong? Are there different ways that you look at it? I'll start with Mr. Burns and I'll go to Mr. Devlitz. Thank you, Senator Cardin. If the United States is in a position following a congressional vote that our government could not execute the agreement, fulfill the responsibilities that we've undertaken, I think the eventual winner here will be Iran. Iran will emerge from that vote strengthened for the reasons you suggested. But here's what, based on my own experience as someone who worked in this context in the P5, P5 unity would unravel. But more importantly, it's the Japanese, the other Asians, the Indians who've joined in the sanctions regime who would, uh, I think, stop enforcing the sanctions. You would see the sanctions regime wither gradually and then I think disintegrate. And most importantly, the restrictions on Iran for the last 18 months and 
for the next 10 to 15 years would evaporate. So they could go back to uranium enrichment at Natanz and Fordow. They wouldn't have to dismantle the core of the reactor at Arak, and we wouldn't have as much a line of sight through the IAEA uh, into their operations because the additional protocol wouldn't be adhered to. And the IAEA wouldn't have the access that comes with this nuclear agreement. As I've said, I see the risks here, but I think the benefits outweigh the risks. I want the United States to be in the strongest possible position and keep Iran under the spotlight of international attention. I think a vote to disapprove that prohibits the administration from going forward, if that's the scenario that we're talking about, I think that's very negative for our national security interests. Mr. Dubowitz. So, Ranking Member Cardin, a few responses. The first is on sanctions. I, I think that that characterization misunderstands the kind of powerful financial sanctions regime that has been built up over the past decade, by first by uh, Juan Zarate and then by Stuart Levy, and then by the U.S. Congress. I think what um, Nick is talking about is, is a sort of classic trade-based sanctions regime, right, where you actually depend on many countries to join you in a trade-based essential embargo. What we've done, Congress has done, what, what the Treasury Department has done, is they've used the power of the U.S. financial system. And so I don't imagine that the Europeans, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and others are willing to risk having their financial institutions sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department. I don't believe those financial institutions are going back into Iran in the early years of this agreement, even if you approve this deal. Because I, I think- Let me say I agree with you. I, I don't right. disagree with what you're saying. Uh, but in the short term, there will be some sanction relief. There will be some leakage. There'll be some Correct. assets released. Iran's likely, I think, to go forward with some modernization of their enrichment capacity. And at that stage, we would hope we would get an opportunity to move forward with a diplomatic process. How are we stronger at that point? Well, I, I think we're stronger because I think if you take Nick's argument to its logical extension, and I agree with Nick, this is about tough-minded diplomacy and tough-minded implementation. You know, I, I did some research in, in preparation for this, and I, I thought it was really interesting looking back in the Cold War at, at the um, congressional role with respect to, to Salt One and, and Democratic Senator Henry Jackson. It was very interesting. I mean, he obviously had some serious concerns about Salt One. He authored an amendment um, where essentially saying that in future strategic arms control negotiations that American strategic arms had to be set at parity with, with the Soviet Union. Um, that amendment, which was known as the Jackson Amendment, passes by 56 to 35. Interesting. Salt One goes ahead. Um, the amendment lays the predicate for Senator Jackson's later critique that the Carter administration actually didn't meet the criteria of the Jackson Amendment in the SALT II Treaty. And in fact, it actually laid the predicate for the eventual uh, uh, essential erosion of the SALT Treaty SALT II Treaty. Republicans and Democrats in the Senate at that time expressed disapproval of SALT II uh, to President Carter, and after the Soviet invasion, Carter essentially withdrew from Senate consideration. So I think what, what I'm suggesting is, is that I think that a strong, resounding message of disapproval of this deal will provide the kind of political leverage to the next president and to the next Congress to do a number of things. Number one is to negotiate a better agreement based on very specific amendments, not ripping up the agreement, not no enrichment, not some of the positions that have been taken by folks, but some very specific amendments that I outlined, including, and I think the most dangerous part of this deal, are the sunset restrictions, because that is the fundamentally f flawed architecture of the deal. 
we all agree that in the first few years of this agreement, it's a pretty good agreement with respect to constraining the program. The problem with this agreement is that once those sunsets start falling at year eight and a half with respect to advanced centrifuge R&D, with respect to year 10, they can install centrifuges, unlimited number of centrifuges at Natanz. By the way, breakout time is not one year to 15 years. Breakout time starts falling at year 10. Now, we don't know. I've, I've not been involved in classified briefings, obviously, so I don't know if it falls to zero by year 13, as President Obama had feared, or it falls to five months by year 15. I don't know exactly whether it's a hard landing or soft landing. What I do know is breakout time starts to drop between years 10 and 15. And by year 15, we are in a terrible position. Because at that point, it's not a civilian nuclear program that we all imagine. It's an industrial size nuclear program. Now, industrial size to me is deeply concerning from a verification inspection point of view. Because let's imagine what this program looks like. There are multiple Natanzas. There are multiple Fordos. There are multiple Iraqs. After you're 15. Let me let my other colleagues have a chance. I, I appreciate right. the. I think you, you've answered my question pretty thoroughly and, I, and, I, and very impressively. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Thank you. Senator Perdue. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for being here. Uh, Mr. Dubowitz, we're trying to execute something that we fought hard here in this committee and, and ended up with a unanimous approach to this because we realized this was bigger than a partisan issue. It's bigger than the president. It's bigger than any member of this committee or indeed the Senate. This is about the future security of that part of the world and indeed I would argue the entire world as Prime Minister Netanyahu has said repeatedly. Uh, I've personally met with him twice in the first six months of this year about this very issue. Uh, his concerns are very real. And now that we see the actual document, um, you know, honestly, um, Mr. Ambassador, with all due respect, uh, I don't care if Ronald Reagan himself were bringing this deal. I would see the same flaws and benefits as I see right now. So this is not about this is Obama's deal or it's a Bush deal or anything else. Um, I've been very measured in my approach to this as a business guy and an outsider to the process. I want what's right for America. People back home want us to get this right. Um, let me read you a couple of quotes. Uh, I did this the other day, and I hate to repeat myself, but I think it's so paramount that we remember what, what's at risk here. This agreement, <clears throat> this is a quote, this agreement will help to achieve a longstanding and vital American objective and end to the threat of nuclear proliferation on the Korean Peninsula. That was, Prime, that was uh, President Clinton in uh, 1994. President Obama, just this year, Iran will never be permitted to develop a nuclear weapon. I'm sorry, I just, I see this deal in the first 10 years. I think the characterization has been said, in the first 10 years, it probably does an adequate job. The sunsets are a real flaw. The enrichment capability is a real flaw. I want to focus on that. But let me remind you of another thing. We talked about inspections. We've really gotten down in the weeds in this deal. And I want to come back to enrichment, but I want to ask one really, a couple of questions, uh, so I'll, I'll try to be very brief. Um, under the agreement, North Korea has agreed to freeze its existing nuclear program and to accept I, uh, in international inspection of all existing facilities. President Obama, the deal is to stop the progress. The, the, this deal intends to stop the progress of Iran's nuclear program and roll it back in key areas. You know, if you look at the enrichment presupposition of this deal when we started, um, it was like we gave up the position and said, okay, we're going to assume that we're going to allow you to continue to enrich, albeit at low levels, albeit with low enrichment percentages, albeit you'll have to mothball your IR1s. And by the way, in the taunts, they're not dismantling this. They're moving it from one hall to the other. 
Um, I don't know what breakout time is. I, I think what the president said, his fear that after years 13, 14, or 15 that the breakout does approach zero, I don't know that either. But I do see that after the sunset year of 10, and certainly 8 and even 5, the stability of that region deteriorates dramatically. We gave them the right early on. We just presumed that we would allow them to enrich from day one in the negotiations, therefore bypassing uh, 18 countries that have nuclear, civil nuclear, civil nuclear programs that are um, not allowed to enrich. There are five countries that have civil nuclear programs and are allowed to enrich under the NPT. There are nine countries that have the bomb, five in NPT, four that are not NPT. The countries that are allowed to enrich and have civil nuclear programs are indeed exceptions out of the 180 plus people or countries in the NPD. Those five countries are countries like Holland, Germany, Japan, Brazil, Argentina. Now we're taking a bad actor, one of, one of the greatest supporters of, of terrorism in the world, and we're allowing them to become a member of a very exclusive club that is, has a civil nuclear program and is allowed to enrich, but does not have the bomb. I just don't see that Iran has earned that right. And we, did, we gave that up in the very beginning um, as a part of the presupp presupposition of this thing. So I'd like to ask both of you, I mean, first of all, is that presupposition right? And, um, you know, can you discuss, and let's start with uh, Mr. Dubowitz. Um, you know, why, what was the purpose of that early acquiescence of that? And then as we go forward, isn't the real issue here how do we keep them from enriching, not just during the period of time? I realize we're going we're gonna to have pretty much control over what they're enriching, if we can inspect. Past the sunset time in the past 10 years, I don't think that we've eliminated their possi the possibility of Iran becoming a nuclear weapon. I think we've just delayed that and actually given them a, an additional path or two uh, in to do that. They've given up plutonium in the first few years, or my, my perception is that they have. But we haven't allowed them or forced them to give up the uranium path. Um, Mr. Dubowitz, would you start? So, Senator, thank you for the question. I mean, I, a short answer why we gave it up. We, we gave it up because the Iranians demanded it. We gave it up at the beginning of the negotiations, not the end of the negotiations. We, had to take our, we took our most valuable concession and we gave it up front instead of keeping it till the end. Now, what are the consequences of this? The consequences of this is that by year 15, Iran will be able to engage in unlimited enrichment. Not only 3.67%, not just 20%, they'll be able to engage in 60% enrichment. And they'll use the justification for that that they need a nuclear-powered submarine fleet. Not only are they able to stockpile um, 300 kilograms of low-enriched uranium, they'll be able to stockpile an unlimited amount of, in, of enriched uranium at 3.67, at 20, and at 60. So if, when you talk about a verification and inspection regime of an industrial-sized nuclear program, what you have to imagine is that Iran has scores of enrichment facilities, multiple heavy water reactors, and the enriched uranium, which is at 3.67, 20, and 60, is sitting all around the country, a country that is more than twice the size of Texas. So imagine the verification and inspection regime that has to be put in place at year 15 and 16 and 17 in order to monitor a massive nuclear program with tens and tens of thousands of kilograms of 20 and 60 percent enriched uranium sitting in Iran. I mean, I, I think that what happens at that point is that it's not a question of breaking out of their declared facilities. I don't think most experts believe Iran will break out of their declared facilities. It's trying to prevent a covert sneak out when Iran essentially has the ability 
right, with tens of thousands of kilograms at 20% and 60%, which is literally a step away from weapons grade, and they've got it dispersed around this huge country, and now we're depending on 150 or 200 IAEA inspectors to inspect that massive stockpile of en enriched uranium, and the fact at that point is they will also have advanced centrifuges that are so powerful, you don't need 19,000 to weaponize. You probably need 600. So you need to basically build an enrichment facility, which you're legally allowed to do at year 15, that looks like Fordo with 600 centrifuges buried under a mountain on a Revolutionary Guard base. And then the, the only Iranian challenge is, how do I get the LEU or the, the, the MEU, which is the 60%, to that covert clandestine base, which, by the way, at that point isn't even covert or clandestine because the Iranians have legally allowed, been allowed to build it. Now, Ali Heinen, on verification inspection, I think put it better than anyone to the Financial Services Committee last week where we testified together. He was asked, how good is this verification inspection regime? And Dr. Heinen said, on declared facilities, Nick is right. The verification inspection, he rated it a 7 or an 8 out of 10. On suspicious sites, he rated it a 5 out of 10. And on detecting where Iran would engage in weaponization activities, on a scale of 1 to 10, he gave it a 0. And so our fundamental problem here is on the two most dangerous parts of this program, suspicious sites and detection of weaponization, the former deputy general of the IAEA, who's in charge of safeguards, said a 5 and a 0. So my biggest concern is industrial-sized program with that kind of verification inspection regime, we have a tremendously difficult challenge ahead of us. I'm sorry. Thank you. I, I uh, am charged with managing my time, and I'm over, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. Uh, let me ask you a question, uh, and I'd like to get through a series of them in my time. So. Would it be fair to say that the sanctions that Congress passed and were implemented into law were critical in bringing Iran to the negotiating table? Yes. Yes, but along with the global nature of the sanctions, the EU sanctions, that was the critical determinant, not just the U.S. sanctions. Okay, the others. but the sanctions that we passed, in essence, uh, got the other countries to join because they had secondary consequences to them. Isn't that not a fair statement? Absolutely, Senator Menendez. Oh. I, I mean, I remember, I remember the debate over SWIFT and central bank sanctions and oil export sanctions that you co-authored. The Europeans were opposed to them, and because of congressional pressure, they eventually went along because they were under U.S. secondary pressure. And isn't it fair to say that the threat of sanctions, even though uh, suspended during performance, but the threat of sanctions is a significant deterrent towards breach in the future? I would say it depends. If we're alone in threatening those sanctions, you know, they'll be partially effective, perhaps, a partial impact. But what makes the greatest difference is when you have the other global economies, Japan, China, Russia, the EU on board. That's when the Iranians finally decided to negotiate. We couldn't bring them to the negotiating table in 2006 So if oil is more important to you with than US Iran sanctions. achieving a nuclear weapon, our deterrence is all gone, is basically what you're telling me. That's Mr. Dubowitz, Mr. Dubowitz, is, is the continuing threat of uh, potential sanctions, including the sanctions that are implemented in law by the United States, which has secondary consequences? I mean, it seems to me you have to make a decision. Do I want to do business with a maybe trillion-dollar economy, or do I want to do business with a $17 trillion economy? And in that respect, uh, while I may grudgingly not like it, 
The reality is, I want to do business with a $17 trillion economy. Senator Menendez, we don't sanction countries, as, as, as you know. We, we sanction companies and financial institutions, and, and our sanctions are powerful. The financial sanctions are powerful because they're based on market participants making risk-reward decisions, tens of thousands of those decisions every month. And the, the, the notion that financial institutions are going to go rushing back into Iran on a congressional vote of approval or disapproval, I think actually defies the history of what's exactly happened. We, we don't sanction Japan. We sanction financial institutions in Japan who will be cut off from the U.S. financial system under U.S. secondary pressure from Sasada. Isn't it fair to say that if snapback is to mean anything, it has to be snapback to something? Because otherwise, what are you snapping back to? If that is heralded by the administration in the testimony brought before this committee, that we can do everything that we are doing now uh, if they violate, if snapback is also considered a deterrent, isn't it mean you have to snap back to something? I would say this, Senator, and I understand, uh, I understand the question. Um, the purpose of the sanctions is tactical is to influence the behavior of the government of Iran. If the negotiations were to break down or if the Congress were to disapprove, I would favor American sanctions reimposed on Iran. But I wouldn't believe that those sanctions would drive Iran back to a deal because we wouldn't have the buy-in so of the rest of the So then snapback is insignificant, what you're saying? No, I think snapback snap back is critical. You can't have it both ways, Ambassador. Right. Either it's significant or it's insignificant. Which one is it? No, I'm answering your question. Snapback oh, is let me give a simple question. Is it or is it not significant? Snapback is, snap is significant or not? Snapback is important, but it's only going to be effective if we have some major economies with us. Okay. And Senator Menendez, it's, it, the problem is it's going to be snapping back in 10 years against an Iranian economy that will be twice the size of hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, where a number of the contracts, and there's been a dispute over this, and but some of the stage of the contract will be grandfathered. Mm. There'll be huge business lobbies in these capitals, and so we'll be snapping back against a much harder target in 10 years than we'll be snapping back in well, a year that or presumes, two. that presumes performance over this whole period of time. Correct. Right, so that snapback could actually take place sooner if, in fact, there is a violation of performance, except that in a letter that the Iranians sent to the Security Council dated July 20th, of this year, it says in paragraph six, and I quote, it is clearly spelt out in the joint comprehensive plan of action that both the European Union and the United States right. will refrain from reintroducing or reimposing the sanctions and restrictive measures lifted under the joint plan of act, joint comprehensive plan of action. It is understood that reintroduction or reimposition including through extension of the sanctions and restrictive measures, will constitute significant non-performance, which would relieve Iran from its commitments in part or in whole. So basically, what I try to get from Secretary Liu, and I can't get from my own government, I have to read it from the government of Iran to understand what the agreement, as I read it, was about, and the language is pretty clear, that the sanctions that expire next year that the Congress passed 99 to 0, at least in the Senate, and overwhelmingly in the House, that was signed by the administration, that the administration, notwithstanding what you say, Ambassador Burns, heralds as the reasons that it came, Iran came to the table with tough diplomacy as part of it as well, and will expire next year. Well, number one is you're not going to be snapping back to that. 
And number two, the Iranians are saying, if you just simply reauthorize it as it is, with all of the waiver options the president has, they will consider that a violation. So we, the Congress of the United States, have been told basically by the Iranians that our actions, in essence, will violate their understanding. And I don't know what you snap back to if at the end of the day you don't have anything in place in law, notwithstanding whether or not you get the international community support. And then it goes on. Now I understand why Secretary Liu didn't give me answers to my questions, because there's a further sentence in here. Mm -hmm. The joint Comprehensive Plan of Action requires an effective end to all discriminatory compliance measures and procedures, as well as public statements inconsistent with the intent of the agreement. So that's why Secretary Liu wouldn't give me a definitive answer. Because, number one, they signed an agreement that says you can't even, Congress can't even extend the existing sanctions with all of the present waivers. And number two is if you say something wrong, that's also in violation. That's pretty outrageous. Pretty outrageous. Well, and the Iranians are right, Senator Menendez, because, I mean, if you look at paragraphs 26, 29, and 37 of this agreement, I mean, they've effectively written into this agreement a nuclear snapback. Now, the, the administration will tell you that there is a distinction between nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions. The Iranians don't believe there's a distinction between nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions. They believe that any reimposition of sanctions will constitute a breach of this agreement, and they will essentially use that, in my view, to threaten the Europeans not to join us on any transatlantic snapback. And if, if Nick is right, and the Europeans are essential to a snapback, then we will lose some of the Europeans, if not all of them, when the Iranians begin to threaten nuclear escalation when they walk away from this agreement based on three provisions in the agreement they believe justifies that. Mr. Chairman, I have several other lines of questioning, but I will hopefully wait for a second round. Absolutely, and uh, I, this was very frustrating. I know Senator Flake uh, the other day tried to get an answer to that, and there's certainly, at a minimum, ambiguity. I would say, I reserved a little time, by the way, I didn't use it all a minute ago. I would think at a minimum we would absolutely extend at some point the sanctions we have in place and reserve the right to put in place uh, the nuclear sanctions for terrorism or other activities if we believe uh, uh, that is being carried at a minimum. But let me, since I had a little time, I want to ask this question. Senator Cardin hit on it for a moment. But, and Secretary Burns, you've been You've mentioned the international aspect of our sanctions. What would happen if the EU sanctions were relieved and the UN sanctions were relieved, but the congressionally mandated sanctions stayed in place? I mean, my guess is that Iran would continue to adhere to the deal because they were getting some relief. So I do wonder, I mean, I think sometimes we get put in a situation where we have a false choice or a straw man gets uh, put up, but if y'all could both fairly briefly respond to what would happen if we decided not to lift our congressionally mandated sanctions. Well, I assume then that the administration would not be in compliance with the agreement because the administration has committed to relieve certain sanctions, specific sanctions are in well, the well, agreement. Well, let me, let me say this. The administration, Iran, the UN, the EU all knew that we were going to have a chance to weigh in. So, matter of fact, they've said publicly that the reason this 90 days uh, occurs before they, it actually kicks in is to give us that opportunity. So, 
I'm sorry, I'm not going to play that game, okay? Everyone knew when this was being negotiated that at some point we were going to have the opportunity to weigh in. And that, that to me has been what has been most frustrating by the arrogance shown by some of our witnesses last week regarding that issue that we unanimously voted on. So I'm not going to allow you to play that game either. So go ahead. I'm not playing a game. I'm just giving you a direct answer. If the question is, the, the United States, Congress and the administration is not able to lift the sanctions that we, that the executive branch promised the Iranians and others that we would lift, I think the agreement would probably fall apart. And you'd be stuck with a situation where the Iranians then had sanctions relief and yet didn't have restrictions on their nuclear program. And I'd just like to say to Senator Menendez, I've not seen the letter. I think that, I would hope that the administration would challenge that letter that the Iranian ambassador, presumably to the UN, uh, signed, and I would think we wouldn't have to abide by it, and we ought to test the Iranians on effective, tough-minded yeah. um, compliance. I think Congress ought to pass them back in place, but uh, Mark, go ahead. Senator Corker, this is sort of scenario one that I described. The president would have two options. One is he would try to neutralize the statutory sanctions block that he's put in place. I actually think that he could give probably about 60 to 70 percent of the sanctions relief through executive order. I'm happy to talk about how he would do that. Um, but the other thing that would, would not happen, which is, I think, very important with respect to ongoing economic leverage, Iranian banks would not get back onto SWIFT. The Central Bank of Iran would not get back onto SWIFT because SWIFT would not allow banks back on if there were U.S. secondary financial sanctions and designations of those banks still in place. And so you would still maintain the most powerful sanction that is in place. And just to underscore that, without access to SWIFT, Iran has no access to the, the global financial community. They cannot move money. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank the witnesses. I, it does uh, a lot, and this really does come down in terms of Congress's role as to what are nuclear-related sanctions and which are not. And um, I, I still haven't uh, been given a good answer from the State Department or others uh, as to what constitutes nuclear-related sanctions and which don't. In a question last time, as the chairman said, that um, a hard time answering that. Their, their answer didn't reflect what I think a lot of us consider the plain text of the agreement. And uh, posed the question last time, what would happen if, if uh, Iran, in the next couple of years, if the agreement is signed and, and implemented, um, you know, abducts some Americans or commits atrocities that clearly warrant some action on our part. And, and we decide that the most effective sanctions were the ones against Iran's central bank. We go ahead then and sanction Iran, uh, not for nuclear infractions, but for other nefarious activities in the region. Would that be considered uh, a violation of the agreement? And uh, I, I think we were assured no, but if you read the agreement and read uh, the annexes, it, it would seem that it would. Uh, Ambassador Burns, do you want to comment a little further on that? I know we've, we've tread this territory before, but that's an important point for this committee and for kind of the institutional issues we're dealing with here. Right, and I'm, I'm intrigued by the letter that Senator Menendez read out, because if the Iranians are putting forward that position, we ought to challenge it. So my view is the administration should keep the terrorism and human rights-related sanctions that we have on Iran. We shouldn't disavow those. 
And we ought to test the Iranians. This is going to be a giant game of diplomatic chicken. And they're going to try to, as I said in my testimony, eat away at it by small infractions, hoping we won't call them on it. We ought to call them on it. If there's some, if there's some episode where a national, American national interests are at stake and we think we've got to punish the Iranians, we're going to have to calculate the risk, but we, also, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from it. And I'll bet that the Iranians, if we're firm, are going to elect to stay with this agreement in most respects because, you know, they've got sanctions relief. They need that for their economy. And so a lot will come down on, on the toughness of this administration and its successor and the one after that for the life of this, of this agreement. And that's why I put so much emphasis both on inspections but also um, being able to reimpose sanctions if we have to on the part of the United States. Senator Flake, let, let me read to you a passage here, because I agree with Nick, we should not lift sanctions on anything related to terrorism. So the, the Central Bank of Iran, there was a 311 of the US Patriot Act that said that the entire financial sector of Iran, including the Central Bank of Iran, is a, a jurisdiction of primary money laundering concern. Treasury cited the Central Bank's support for terrorism, pursuit of weapons of mass destruction, financing of nuclear, ballistic, use of deceptive financial practices, poses an illicit financial risk for the entire global financial system. And this has gone on, and it's been repeated over and over again in, in terms of the Financial Action Task Force has warned that its financial institutions about these risks. In other words, the Central Bank of Iran's sanction, which is a legislative sanction, is a sanction that is also based on terrorism. That's not a nuclear sanction. That's a sanction that is hybrid. And so as a result of that logic, we should not be relieving sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran as part of the JCPOA. Now, if we were, if, since it is happening, and we try to reimpose sanctions to your question on the Central Bank of Iran, the Iranians would say, because they would flip it around, they would say the administration relieved the sanction on, on the CBI and, and essentially characterized that as a nuclear sanction, right, because we're only lifting nuclear sanctions. Mm -hmm. They would use the administration's argument to say the reimposition of sanctions on the CBI is a nuclear sanction, a violation of the agreement. We have a nuclear snapback. We're walking away. I don't believe as a result of this agreement, the way it is drafted, we will ever be able to reimpose sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran without the Iranians absolutely crying foul. And I, I would guess the Iranians would declare that literally an act of economic war in the way that the Russians have suggested. And uh, as a result of that, I, I think we will be deterred, particularly the Europeans, from ever redesignating the Central Bank of Iran again. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Burns, you, you've uh, spoken in the past quite a bit, and you mentioned it here, what we do should this agreement pass in terms of uh, diplomacy, in terms of muscular diplomacy in the region, or uh, what uh, I've res referred to as a kind of a regional security framework that really needs to be in place uh, if, uh, I mean, obviously this agreement to deal with Iran's nuclear ambitions is one thing. It's another uh, to uh, have peace and stability in the region, uh, which a lot of these questions we've raised uh, have an impact on. But what do you see is, is our responsibility or what do we need to do and what's Congress's role in that regard? I think a lot of us recognize that uh, with Iraq, um, our withdrawal there wasn't followed by muscular diplomacy. Uh, not to suggest that that would have prevented uh, a lot of what's happening there, but it probably would have helped. Um, the uh, situation in Syria with the red line and uh, not following up on there. 
probably uh, has, has not served our interests well in terms of what we ought to be doing with this agreement or not in the region. What do you see as Congress's responsibility or our role uh, should this agreement go into effect um, on the kind of a, a regional security framework there? Thank you. I think we ought to see, Senator, the application of an American containment strategy on Iran in the region as part of these negotiations. We're going to be negotiating with Iran, implementing this deal for the next 10 or 15 years, and I think we need to put pressure on them in another sphere. You know, where they're pushing into the Sunni world, you mentioned Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, certainly through the support of Hezbollah and Hamas in Gaza, and Yemen. There are two things I think that Congress can do. One is support the administration in renegotiating the U.S.-Israel military assistance agreement. It's the one that expires in two years, but we could advance those negotiations to assure Israel's qualitative military edge. I think Israel's got to worry that Iran is not going to attack it, but that Hamas and, and Hezbollah may well resume the rocket wars against Israel. We have an obligation to support Israel in that conflict. And secondly, the president's already begun to do this. Can we knit up the Gulf countries in a tighter, stronger military block in order to effectively deter Iranian influence in the Gulf. Syria and Iraq, much more difficult, where Iraq, uh, Iran is in a dominant position, but we can begin to chip away at that as well. And so I think it's incongruous to think about these dual strategies. They, they seem to be opposites, but I think they go together. The nuclear deal makes sense because it sets the Iranians back but we've got to push them back on the conventional side, the regional side as well, keep the pressure on them uh, in all cases. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and, and just so that I'm not misunderstood, when I mentioned we should pass them back in place, I'm talking about the expiring sanctions that expire at the end of this year, just so there is mm -hmm. something to, in, in 2016, excuse me, mm -hmm. so that there is something to snap back to at some point. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, to the witnesses. Um, the way I look at this deal is I think the U.S. by diplomacy has done something very, very strong from day one to year 15, achieved something that it wasn't achieving with sanctions. Um, but then from year 15 to 25, we enter into a significant transitional period. And I would say after 25, we're kind of in a normalization period. The only obligation on Iran after year 25 is to abide by the NPT, including the additional protocol inspection, which they need to ratify at year eight. Right. So I, th I think there's sort of a very strong day one to 15, transitional with question marks 15 to 25, and then more question marks after. And, uh, but, but let me lay out first the, the, the year, day one to year 15, because I think it is important to acknowledge what diplomacy has achieved. Here was the status quo. The status quo before the negotiations started the, the, the November 2013 round, was even in the face of punishing sanctions, Iran's program, nuclear program, was rocketing ahead. They were at 19,000 centrifuges to enrich uranium, and that number was growing. They were at 11,000 kilograms of enriched uranium, and that number was growing. They had enriched up to the 20% level, and that level was growing. They had an ongoing construction of a heavy water facility at Iraq to process plutonium, and that was ongoing. And they had very limited inspection access, especially shielding any international scrutiny of their covert program. Here's what the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said about the program when he spoke to the UN in September of 2012. 
For over seven years, the international community has tried sanctions with Iran. It's had an effect on the economy, but we must face the truth. Sanctions have not stopped Iran's nuclear program. That's what Prime Minister Netanyahu said. Sanctions have not stopped Iran's nuclear program. Many would argue that sanctions may have had an opposite effect. I mean, if you put the, if, if folks were trying to get the U.S. to stop something, international community, would we just stop or would we say, we're the United States of America, you're not going to stop us. There's some argument that defiance over the sanctions accelerated the nuclear program. So, in terms of looking at alternatives, the notion that we just shouldn't have entered into diplomacy at all, which some have suggested, and just allowed that status quo to continue, it was going to one of two places. It was going to Iran, as was said, they were a few months away from being a nuclear threshold state. They were going to cross it, or the global community was not going to allow them to cross it by taking military action. That was the status quo, in my view, before these negotiations started. So what does the deal now provide to contrast to that status quo? Iran pledges in the first paragraph of the deal it will never seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. Iran disables two-thirds of the centrifuges. Iran reduces enriched uranium stockpile by 97%, capping at 300 kilograms, which is insufficient to make one weapon. Iran caps the enrichment level of the stockpile at 3.67%. Iran disables the Iraq facility so it can't process plutonium. Iran commits to limitations on R&D to guarantee any nuclear program is exclusively peaceful, and Iran agrees to a robust inspection of sites, uranium supply chain, and suspected covert facilities. That's what we have that we didn't have without diplomacy, and that, frankly, we weren't going to have without diplomacy from day one to year 15, in my view. Now, in year 15, what we have, to pick up some of your guys' testimony, is uh, the caps start to come off. They, they come off on the stockpile. They come off on the enrichment percentage. They come off on spent fuel reprocessing. They come off on R&D activities. They start to come off on the number of centrifuges. So the caps come off progressively starting in year 10, but really 15 to 25. What we have from year 15 to 25 that's Iran-specific is we have the continued monitoring of the centrifuge program up to year 20, and then we have this kind of life cycle supply chain Iran-specific inspection of uranium to year 25. But then we get to year 25, and at 25 plus 1, here's what we have. They promise not to get nuclear weapons. They're an NPT nation. I'm going to assume that they ratify the additional protocol, because if they don't, that's a breach. So we get the inspections that anybody gets under the additional protocol, which was designed after North Korea to, to try to fix some gaps in what we did with North Korea. So I think the, you know, as I'm looking at this, there's sort of a three-level thing, which is up front, it really produces something that we wouldn't got of absent diplomacy. In the middle years, the transitional period is challenging, and after 25, there's sort of an assumption of normalization. It, the deal really looks at Iran and says, because you've been a bad actor, you've suffered under years of sanctions, and for 25 years, you're going to have to comply with Iran-specific requirements that no other nation in the world will have to comply with. But after 25 years, we will just treat you as we treat any other NPT nation. So I don't know. Am I looking at the deal wrong? Uh, I think, I Senator, that there are, there are a few things that you said that I would um, draw attention to. 
Um, the first I is... I have one more quick question. So if you sure. quick, that'd be great. So really quick, this deal gets dangerous after year 10, not after year 15. I could explain why we don't have a lot of time. But essentially, unlimited number of centrifuges install it in the tons, breakout time starting to drop, maybe to zero, maybe to five months. Second of all, um, if you actually look at the history that you were suggesting, I actually did an analysis of this because what I did was I looked at the period of time in five years when the most intensive sanctions were being imposed. I actually looked at what happened to Iran's installation and operation of centrifuges and, and their stockpiling of LAU. I don't have time to read the statistics in my testimony, page 32. Okay. But I did the analysis, and the conclusion is Iran moved incrementally. They didn't rush forward. They didn't... They didn't go hell-bent. They moved incrementally because they fundamentally feared, number one, U.S. crippling sanctions, and they understood our red lines with respect to military force. So that history of most intensive sanctions was a history of incremental nuclear progress, um, not, a, not a, a significant breakout or expansion of the program in the way that you suggested. And third is um, the problem with respect to years 50, 10 to 15 is Iran starts industrializing by year 10, once they hit 15, as you've explained, you literally have an unlimited enrichment and plutonium reprocessing capacity with some restrictions, as you've suggested. And that's when things get, as you suggested, very, very dangerous. Very quickly. I think you gave a good answer to Senator Perdue's question, which was a very good question. Um, the danger after year 15 is that Iran reconstitutes a civil program and uses it as a cover for a covert program. It is not inevitable that they'll do that. They're going to have to fear the risk of isolation if they do that, the reimposition of sanctions, but mainly the fear of military force by Israel or the United States. So what we do, I think, will have a big impact on what the Iranians do. And that gets back to having a tough-minded American policy in year 15 to year 25. And it means we're in a long-term struggle with the Iranians. I support this because for the next 10 years, We've got the advantage in the long-term struggle, but it means we've got to be really good and focused on these questions uh, after year 15. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Another uh, fantastic hearing. Thank you for the way in which you're uh, conducting this review. Um, just a quick note um, about how we use history in um, our deliberations. Um, uh, my great friend, Senator Perdue, talked uh, in his remarks uh, about the lessons from North Korea, others mostly outside this building have you know, made comparisons to these negotiations with the negotiations that took place in Munich in 1938. There are undoubtedly plenty of examples in which diplomacy has gone wrong, um, in which we signed a deal that didn't work out for the best interests of American national security. But I think it's just important to concede that there are a lot more examples of when we signed diplomatic agreements that turned out very well for the United States that advanced our national security interests that prevented war. Um, you can have the discussion about the uh, very small number of countries that violate the NPT or don't sign it, but the NPT itself is an example of diplomacy, of uh, a diplomatic agreement between nations that has um, advanced national security interests. And a lot of people said that the uh, JAPOA um, wouldn't be uh, observed by the Iranians, and as it turned out, uh, it was. And so I, I just want to make sure that you know, we don't allow ourselves to believe that just because one agreement went wrong, everyone will. Um, uh, Mr. Dubitz, I'm, um, I'm obsessed over this question of the alternative, and I thank you for spending some real time kind of playing out the various iterations. And so um, I, I just maybe want to get a little bit of 
clarification uh, based off of your conversation with Senator Cardin of where you come out as to what the most likely mm -hmm. alternative is. And so let me sort of tell you what I thought you said. You, you concede that sanctions will probably fray, but you don't think that that will be substantial, and you think that the United States, by continuing our sanctions on the financial sector, Will continue to uh, will continue to have an impact. So y you think that they are probably a little bit weaker, um, but that they are not substantially weaker. Is that right? Yes. Um, and then as to what Iran does moving forward, you were talking about what was happening before when they had a sanctions program in place. You suggest that while they may move forward in small steps, um, they are not likely to rush towards breakout or make any giant leaps forward for fear of um, either a military strike or additional sanctions that they'll uh, maybe increase the number of sanctions, increase the number of centrifuges a little bit, but it won't be anything substantial. If passed as prologue, then that is correct. So I, I guess this is where I, sh I struggle with this because, you know, if I'm a, if I'm the coach of a football team and I'm going into halftime, um, I'll concede that whether the score is 21-17 or 21-13, um, I can make up either of those deficits. But every single time, I'll want to be down 21-17 rather than 21-13. And so if you concede that in, in, in your estimate of the most likely scenario, the sanctions are going to be weaker, even by a little bit, and Iran's going to move forward on their nuclear program, I guess I'm still just having a hard time understanding how that leads to a better outcome when we get back to the table than we have today if the sanctions are going to be weaker and the, uh, and the sophistication of their nuclear program is going to be greater. By definition to me, that sounds like a scenario uh, in which we get a worse deal, even if it's a slightly worse deal. So just, I mean, maybe give me a little bit more on why you think that under those circumstances we actually turn out better. So, Senator Murphy, a very good question, and, and I would answer it in a couple of ways. The first is, is that in my testimony I outlined also the, what new sanctions could do, and I recommended, I think, nine or ten new sanctions. So my view is that there are many more sanctions that the U.S. Congress could pass, focused, particularly financial sanctions. And the, and the threat and power of those secondary sanctions would actually not only restore that delta that you talked about, but it could take us beyond that. The second thing is, is that on the, on the issue of Iran's nuclear behavior, now, the, the fact is the Iranians have moved incrementally on this program. And I believe they will move incrementally in my third scenario. I think they will move incrementally in turning on new centrifuges and beginning to make some nuclear steps forward. But I believe at the end of the day, what it comes down to, it comes down to the power of American leadership, the power of American course of diplomacy, and the ability of American negotiators to get better deals. Now, I am imagining that this scenario improves on a congressional vote of disapproval because it sends a message to the international financial community and business community, don't go back into Iran because if you do, you're going to get hit with new sanctions, particularly when there's another president. Right? And I think that power of coercion improves Im immensely, actually, as a result of those political and economic dynamics. And I would say this again, I, I think that what I'm suggesting is not to rip up a deal, I'm suggesting actually seven ways to amend it, and I'm actually underscoring one way that this deal could be improved significantly 
per Senator Kane's analysis, and that is on the sunset provisions. I have suggested in my testimony that before we allow these provisions to sunset, creating the kind of situation that we all acknowledge would be incredibly difficult, leaving, as Nick said, the only option would be military force at that period, which means that the deal makes war more likely, not less likely. My recommendation is expand those threat of new sanctions, go in there and negotiate on the sunset provision a term that says this will be subject to an affirmative vote of the UN Security Council, and that if, unless Iran is behaving in ways that we want, these restrictions, dangerous restrictions, are not going to sunset. I, so I, I hear you to say that you think that if we pass new sanctions, that could possibly override the fraying that happens other other places. Um, but if you concede, as as I as I thought I heard you did, that the sum total will still be weaker sanctions, um, it, it's it, it just puts us in a in a worse place. I just want to get into a, a, a quick. Question but, but Senator Murphy, that's not, that's not what I said. I just want to clarify that okay, for the record. Sure. Sanctions are not about legalities only. They're about psychology. The mere threat of new sanctions changes the fundamental psychology in the marketplace, which is driven by two emotions, fear and greed. And so if you want to affect market behavior of financial institutions and companies, what you have to do is send a message that you're willing to escalate sanctions. And if you're willing to escalate sanctions, even if you don't escalate them, but you threaten escalation, you actually are, are not doing what you're suggesting, which is you're not reducing that delta. You're enhancing that delta from a psychological perspective, which is the main way that you affect financial institutions and market actors. Just a quick, quick question for Secretary Burns. Um, uh, Mr. Dubowitz talked about his belief that a rejection of the deal um, would not empower hardliners uh, internally, which is... is which uh, s sounds a little contrarian to what I've heard. What, what's your estimation of the balance of power between moderates and hardliners in Iran should we reject this deal? What, what's the most likely scenario internally within their political dynamics? Very difficult to say, but uh, I, obviously the, there are a lot of hardliners in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Command and some around the Supreme Leader who don't like this deal and I think would like to see it unravel. But the more important point here, if sanctions... Uh, if, if, we, if we deal new sanctions on Iran, it will, in a real-world situation, blow this negotiation apart. And Iran will get sanctions relief from the rest of the world. It will have no restrictions on its nuclear program, and we'll be sanctioning them. We'll be back exactly where we started a couple of years ago, which is in a disadvantageous position, I think, for our country. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Dubowitz, I want to start. This, here's the central argument that we're being given, okay? <clears throat> there exist these sanctions in the world today. They're going to go away as part of this deal, the U.S. sanctions, the international sanctions. If Congress somehow rejects this deal, then one of two things is going to happen. Number one, the sanctions are still going to go away internationally, and Iran will then, I've just heard, are going to, is going to continue to enrich. But if that happens, under that scenario, if in fact... The rest of the sanctions stay in place around the world, but Iran violates the terms of the deal, then by the very definition of the deal, the sanctions would be reimposed again, would they not? Correct. And so therefore, this argument that somehow if we walk away from the deal, this guarantees that sanctions go away and that Iran uh, moves forward on a nuclear weapon is absurd. Correct. Because what they're basically arguing is that, that the rest of the world isn't serious about sanctions. They want to do business with Iran no matter what, whether they comply or they do not comply. Here's the second argument I reject, and I'm interested in having your input on it, and that is that somehow the entire, without the rest of the world, the sanctions are irrelevant. And yet it is my understanding that the U.S. sanctions 
are the biggest piece of the sanctions in place that have the greatest impact. For example, imagine for a moment if you're a German bank and you now must choose to have either access to the U.S. economy or access to the Iranian economy. Which one, in your mind, are they going to choose? U.S. economy. In fact, my understanding is the U.S. economy represents close to 50% of the flow of capital in the world. Iran is probably less than 1% of that. I can't imagine any entity on the planet, especially in the banking sector, deciding we would still rather have access to the Iranian market and somehow cut ourselves off of the rest of the world. Why I find this all absurd is this idea that somehow the U.S. must now do this because the rest of the world would be really upset at us. The last time I checked, this country saved the world on at least two occasions in the last century. I don't remember the last time the world saved America. And so my point is that we are called to lead on this matter. And I just think that this argument that somehow these sanctions, the whole thing collapses, if uh, all the sanctions that are, will be irrelevant if somehow uh, America isn't a part of this deal, doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't. Um, and and be, because in my mind, if Europe, if you're the Europeans and the rest of the world, you've agreed to lift sanctions on Iran in exchange for specific behavior on their part. If they do no longer comply with that behavior because they're upset that America walked away, then by definition, their own sanctions should kick in again. What, am, am I wrong in my assessment of this? Or? Senator Rubio, you're, you're not wrong because they, that people are trying to have it both ways, as you've suggested. But I, I'd like to suggest one other reason why you're right, and it's a technical reason, and it, it gets back to the SWIFT sanctions. To, to understand this, the Europeans are not going to allow Iranian banks back onto SWIFT if the United States retains secondary financial sanctions on international institutions doing business with those Iranian banks and retains U.S. secondary sanctions on SWIFT. So even in your scenario, and the Europeans provide, quote unquote, all of that relief, the one thing that I believe they will not do is re-emit 46 Iranian banks, including the Central Bank of Iran, back onto SWIFT as long as U.S. financial sanctions remain in place. Because the 10,000 banks around the world plus that actually use SWIFT are not going to do business with those Iranian banks that have been readmitted onto SWIFT if our U.S. financial sanctions are st still remain in place. So the most powerful sanction that we've imposed, that Congress imposed, which were the SWIFT sanctions, will remain intact even if the Europeans are upset with us because fundamentally thousands of financial institutions around the world are not going to do business with Iranian banks on SWIFT. <coughs> I also want to, as a point of comparison, think back to the North Korean negotiations. As I recall, Mr. Burns, I think you were at the State Department during this time, so maybe you, um, when the negotiations were going on with North Korea about their deal, my recollection is that the countries in the region most impacted by it, the Japanese and the South Koreans, were at the table. In fact, that they, they were part of that process. Isn't that correct? Well, there were two negotiations. There was the agreed framework of 94, President Clinton, and there was President Bush's negotiations in 2007 and 8. I was not involved in either one, but I'm more familiar with the second with President Bush. But in both instances, both the Japanese and the South Koreans, neighbors of North Korea, were in favor. In fact, they both supported the agreements and the process that was in place. They, they felt that was a better alternative to the direction that everything else was going at the time. Certainly in 2007 <coughs> and 8, the Japanese and South Koreans were part of the six-party talk framework with North Korea. So yeah. what does it say about this negotiation that while it's great that the P5 plus one, these European powers, the Chinese, the United States are at the table, none of the nations most directly impacted by the Iranian threat, meaning none of our Arab allies, not Israel, none of them are at the negotiating table. None of them were involved in this process, and quite frankly, in the case of Israel, they oppose it, 
And in the case of many of our Arab allies, while they use polite diplomatic language to describe it, there is no enthusiasm in the Arab world for this deal. Well, the reason why um, the P5 is the, was a negotiating entity, that was a decision made by the Bush administration. I was part of that in 2005 and 2006. We felt it was important to get the permanent five countries in Germany, the major powers, to face Iran across the yeah. table. And I would say that the consequences of the United States walking away, and that was the issue that you were talking to Mr. Dubowitz about, I think the real world consequences will be, if we walk away, that the Europeans won't be with us because they agree with this deal. And Iran will be strengthened, Senator, if we walk away, and the sanctions will dissipate, and the restrictions will fall, which is yeah, which but leads I, I, me to support how the administration's can, and I wanna, agreement. Uh, great, I wanna touch on that point, but let me go back one step further before that, and that is, what does it say that none of the countries in the region that are most directly impacted by Iran's threat immediately are not enthusiastic about it, as opposed to the way the Japanese and the South Koreans were, even though that didn't work out. In essence, isn't it concerning that the nations that know Iran the best, who live next door to them, are in fact not enthusiastic about this deal? Shouldn't that alone tell us something about this deal and about its, its, its construct? Well, first I'd say <laughs> we absolutely have to focus on American interests here first in an American perspective all the time. Second, I think that the opinion in the Arab world is very much divided on this. There are some who oppose it. There are some who will support it if we also be tough-minded in pushing back against the Iranians and the Iranian use of conventional force in the region. Certainly Israel is adamantly opposed to this. You're right about that. Okay, so then going back to the point that you raised a second ago, and that is I, I still don't understand this argument. So the Europeans have lifted sanctions, and they're going to lift sanctions on Iran with or without us, right? At this point, they have not lifted sanctions yet, and but they, they won't will. until they won't until we do. Once Iran, if it does, implement. So, if the Congress agreement. rejects this deal, the Europeans are going forward. We'll be at it alone, as Secretary Kerry has said. They're moving forward. The other nations, the other five, are moving forward, and the International Security Council and the European Community are all going to move forward to lift the sanctions, with or without us, if we reject this. Correct. Absent some surprise development, okay. some revelation about <laughs> Iran's activities, I think that's correct that the Europeans and the Chinese and Russians will go ahead. Right. But They'll go ahead in lifting sanctions, right. but then the restrictions on Iran's program would be lifted because the agreement would fall apart. That, and that's what I don't understand. So what you're saying is that Europeans are, and, and these other countries are willing to say, we're going to lift the sanctions with or without you, and if Iran decides then to violate the deal because America walked away, we're still going to lift the sanctions. No, the practical consequence would be if we walked out unilaterally right. and turned on a dime against the agreement the administration has just negotiated, the practical consequence of that is that the deal would effectively not be in force. So Iran would have the dual benefit of new trade with the rest of the world and yet no restrictions, why would and that's have, the problem. But that why would they have that dual benefit? Why would the rest of the world allow Iran to get, get, get away with violating the deal they signed with them too? So I am obviously here not to defend the rest of the world. I'm just trying to interpret behavior. Right. And I used to be part of these negotiations on behalf of the Bush administration. We're in a situation, I think, where if we walk away, the consequence of this will be that no one will be supporting us, and therefore the ultimate winner will be Iran. Iran's going to be strengthened. No, but and I will be in a weaker that, position. I just don't understand that argument because the argument basically is it's real-world diplomacy. Yeah, but it's not. What it basically is saying is these countries, no matter what happens, they're lifting sanctions because they want to do business in Iran. And it'll be great if Iran complies with the deal. It'll be it'll be really great if the U.S. is part of it because then it guarantees in their mind that Iran will comply with the deal. But no matter what. Even if Iran violates this deal that they've made with the rest of the countries, 
it doesn't matter because we're lifting sanctions no matter what. That tells me why it is then that we should not tie our foreign policy to countries that have already made a decision that they're interested in doing business in Iran and they're willing to live with a nuclear Iran. That's what it sounds like to me if you're saying that in the real world they're willing to accept violations of sanctions, uh, violations of the deal and still leave the sanctions off. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret my own views that way. I'd just say this, and we were talking with the chairman about this before. The way, as I understand this, I'm not part of the administration, this deal has been constructed. The United States has obligations, if Iran implements <coughs> the deal, that we have to fulfill, well, including we, we have obligations of the listing US of the sanctions. Supports it. And so therefore, if the US walks away unilaterally and the other parties have honored the agreement, I think Iran emerges tactically strengthened. I don't want to see that which is one reason I support this agreement. Well, if Iran doesn't honor its agreement, then Europe shouldn't honor its part of the agreement either. And that's what you're saying is going to happen, unless we're part of it. And I, I just don't understand that. But. Yeah, I do hope we can flesh that out, because that's yeah. quite a dichotomy, maybe in the next round. But uh, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Dubowitz, I understood you to say that you thought if sanctions were lifted as part of this agreement, they would be lifted um, on human rights and terrorism um, violations by Iran. Did I misunderstand you? Yes, you did, Senator. Um, so you, those sanctions will remain in place? The terrorism and human rights sanctions will remain in place. Okay, thank you. Um, but could I just clarify one thing? There are the economic sanctions, which are most important to you in Congress because you played such an instrumental role, most of the economic sanctions are not linked to human rights, and very few of them are actually linked to terrorism. So fundamentally, what we're doing is giving up the economic sanctions. The fact that we still have terrorism and human rights sanctions will not give us economic leverage in the way that, 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 uh, that Congress, I think, has intended. Well, do you want to speak in greater detail to what those sanctions um, do with respect to Iran? With respect to the terrorism and human rights sanctions? Mm -hmm. The human rights sanctions, uh, I think, are hopefully self-explanatory, but they have no economic import. I mean, we essentially are going to be sanctioning individuals who are involved in, in human rights violations in Iran with no economic impact. The terrorism sanctions, for the most part, um, we will be sanctioning individuals involved in terrorist acts. To the extent that we find a financial institution facilitating a terrorist activity, that one financial institution would be designated. But since Iran will have at least 46 financial institutions back on the SWIFT system, it'll still have 45 financial institutions, including its Central Bank of Iran, to facilitate its economic activity. So it, it would have no economic but, impact. But if we found that there were 10 out of the 42 who were involved in supporting terrorist activities, they would also be sanctioned, is that correct? Um, it was my understanding from Secretary Liu's testimony that um, there would be some economic, economic impact with respect to those sanctions because they would involve um, other entities that are um, involved in economic activities with respect to supporting terrorism. So there would still be 32 banks left on SWIFT, including the Central Bank of Iran, which would be more than enough banks for Iran to continue its economic activity. And the second thing is, I think what you're, you're pointing to, Senator, which is important, is what you're really asking are, are there going to be sanctions that are of such profound economic consequence that it would help us restore the leverage or maintain the leverage, particularly in the later years of this agreement? And I would say to that that I am deeply skeptical that we will ever reimpose sanctions on terrorism grounds 
that have that kind of significant economic impact because the Iranians will then say it's a violation of the clauses of the agreement that I suggested. They will use their nuclear snapback threat, particularly against the weakest link, which is the Europeans. And if, if, if they're able to convince the Europeans not to engage in a transatlantic economic snapback, then we've effectively neutralized our economic pressure. Well, let me just make sure I understand, I understand what I think the deal does with respect to the snapback of sanctions. It's my understanding that, um, and I would agree with Ambassador Burns, that part of what brought Iran to the table was not just the congressional sanctions, which were very important, but it was also the international community. Um, but that if Iran violates the deal, that um, those sanctions would come back into place and that they would come back into place both for the United States and for the European community. Is that everybody else's understanding? Well, it, it depends which sanctions. If, you're, if, if they're nuclear sanctions, well, then... The nuclear sanctions. I, I think my understanding is that we're talking about nuclear sanctions with respect to the agreement. Right. So, 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 but practically speaking, my concern is that if, if, and let's talk practically, if you try to reimpose sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran, expel 46 Iranian banks from SWIFT. Well, I, no, I, I heard your, um, your concern about that, and I appreciate that, but, but I guess what seemed to be implicit in that was a belief that, um, the European community, the other parties to the agreement, would not also be concerned about Iran's violation of what they had agreed to as part of the deal and therefore wouldn't be willing to come back in. Uh, do you share that concern, Ambassador Burns? Well, I think this is a, a really difficult area to think about. And one of the, uh, in, in my earlier testimony, I said, I think there are clear benefits, I support this, but there are some risks here. On the sanctions end, I think that Mark is, is right to suggest it may depend on the nature of the violation. If there's a fundamental violation right. in the next sure. three or four years, I think the Europeans will be with us and most of the rest of the world. If they um, test us with small violations, you know, sometimes countries will say, well, let's just overlook that. We can't. We have to have an exacting standard. And I think, and Chairman Corker asked this earlier, the really difficult one is, um, you know, if they're covert operations by the Iranians and we uncover them, Will, the, will we be able to reassemble a solid sanctions regime? I don't think it's impossible. It will, it will really depend on the nature of the violation, but it's gonna be a, a, a hurdle for us, and I'll, I don't wanna minimize that. Well, are there other interim measures that um, we could take either independently or with the European community as we have in the past when some of these kinds of issues have occurred that would give us some leverage um, before that um, extreme, you know, overt violation of what Iran has agreed to do. Don't, I, I mean, I guess I, based on some of the testimony that we've heard, have um, assumed that we ought to be thinking about not just other actions we should be taking in the region with respect to supporting um, our allies there, but also other measures that we could take um, with respect to Iran, should Iran, um, violate the agreement in some minor or major way. And, and I think. And are there examples, I guess, are there examples in the past that you can think of where that has occurred? Right. Um, obviously, um, 
if you look back at the failure of some of the North Korea negotiations, inadequate oversight, inadequate inspection and verification. So a lot's going to depend on the IAEA. Diplomatically, for this administration and its successor, having a private understanding with the Europeans on exactly how we're going to react together at that small transgression level, when you really got to come back at the Iranians with an unyielding attitude. That's strategic deterrence. That's also why I think that the president needs to reaffirm that we're on a diplomatic path, but he's willing to use military force if there's a clear violation and Iran races towards a nuclear weapon. I think all of this is important in creating the kind of intimidation of the Iranians mm -hmm. that we, we should want to have in our policy. Yeah. And, and my time is up, but I would just point out that I just came from the Armed Services Committee where General Dempsey was asked very directly if there was anything in this agreement that would deter our ability to take military action against Iran, and he testified that there was not. All right. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I uh, just wanted to, to get into some of the things that just, just happened today on the Hill. Uh, there's a Senate Armed Services Committee today, uh, and Senator Ayotte uh, asked Chairman Dempsey uh, again about lifting of the ballistic missile embargo, and the question was, from Senator Ayotte, just to be clear, when you came before the committee then, talking to comments that Chairman Dempsey had made earlier this month, you said under no circumstances should we relieve pressure on Iran on those issues, talking about the arms embargo. So was it your military recommendation that we not agree to lifting of those sanctions? And, and Dempsey's response was, yes, and I used the phrase as long as possible, and then that was the point at which the negotiations continued, but yes, that was my military advice. Mr. Dubert, in the conversations you have had and the information that you have seen, was the advice of the, the Department of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, completely ignored throughout this deal? Well, I can't answer that uh, with respect to what happened internally. I, I've seen the, the public statements, and I think that the, the record is clear. I mean, the, the advice was ignored because the arms embargo and the ballistic missile uh, sanctions were are going to be lifted at years five and eight, which, sits, which suggests to me that's a complete contradiction of what the military leaders had recommended. Can you just lay out some of the concerns that Chairman Dempsey is basing that decision on? Because we, we know it, we've heard it, but what in your mind does that, those, uh, the arms embargo lifting uh, mean? Well, it means that the Iranians are gonna be able to buy advanced weaponry, including attack helicopters and battle tanks and, um, and, and fighter jets. I mean, I, you know, I always look at it from an Iranian perspective. I really do try to figure these things out from how they look at it. And if you think about the way they've structured the deal, it's brilliant. Because early years, they get all the economic sanctions relief. Then the arms embargo lifts, so they've got money to pay for it. Now they're bolstering their conventional military power. Right? By year eight, now they'll be able to de fully develop their ICBM program and procure technologies from Europe, not just Russia and China. Year eight and a half, advanced centrifuge R&D sunsets. Right? By year 10, the file is out of the UN Security Council and they're legitimized as a nuclear power. And then all of the restrictions start sunsetting on their nuclear program. So they've, they've, the way they've structured this deal is front load with relief, buy all the heavy weaponry you can, cause chaos in the Middle East, build up your ICBM program. You're still in compliance with the deal. Right? Amazing. You're still in compliance with the deal. And only then, just wait patiently for the restrictions of the nuclear program to sunset then get to the year 10 to 15 year period, and now you have an industrial-sized program with an ICBM, conventional military power, and a hardened economy against our economic sanctions. It was brilliant the way Iran structured this deal in terms of the phasing of it. 
Uh, Ambassador Burns, I think you would agree, uh, would you agree that the, uh, the advice, the, the testimony of Chairman Dempsey was not uh, taken into account during these discussions? Oh, I have no way of knowing that, uh, and I wouldn't want to comment, but I'd like to address your question very briefly. I think this is a concern. This is one of the risks in the agreement, the fact that ballistic missiles and conventional arms prohibitions will be lifted. Um, I would rather have not, that not have taken place, but we have options. The United States can maintain bilateral sanctions on the Iranians, of course, which we will. They're in place and we should continue them. We can lead a coalition of countries to try to prohibit countries from um, selling arms to the Iranians and trying to block the Iranians, this is two-way, on conventional arms, providing arms to nefarious terrorist groups in the Middle East. The Iranians have been violating these provisions, by the way, for years in their export of arms to Hezbollah and Hamas. So a lot will depend on us. We're not without options. I'm trying to make the best of a bad situation here. I would rather these restrictions have been kept in place. We'll now have to cobble together a separate regime to try to um, impinge upon Iran's actions. You see, and I find that interesting because every time we talk about the United States continuing to push for a tougher deal and that we could try to assure that we kept the sanctions, that we increased our sanctions, that we made a, a tougher deal, the response is, well, the United States can't go it alone, and that we stand alone and that won't work and it won't be effective. But when it comes to the arms embargo, I'm always surprised that the response is, well, the United States can go it alone and we'll create a tough response on the arms embargo. So uh, I think the, the proponents of the uh, agreement have an interesting argument they've made. When it comes to other sanctions, we can't go it alone. But when it comes to the arms embargo sanctions, we can go it alone and everything will be just fine. Um, Mr. Dubitz. Well, in other words, Senator, we, we can lose Russia and China on the arms, not to worry because we'll have secondary sanctions and a coalition of the willing. But, um, but we've got to keep Russia and China with us on the economic sanctions, exactly. otherwise everything gets dismantled. I, I'm not sure I understand the logic of that. Right? Either, either you need Russia or China in order to enforce all of this, or you can afford to lose Russia and China. And my concern is you lose Russia and China. The arms embargo is being lifted right, at, at, at year five, where effectively there's no longer UN cover for an arms embargo. Now, if the argument is you always need UN cover in a multilateral sanctions regime for sanctions to work, then, then that argument is internally inconsistent. Right? And so the notion that somehow we are going to be able to keep heavy weaponry out of the arms of Iran and its surrogates when an when a arms embargo has now been lifted, and we can do that through the power of U.S. secondary sanctions. Well, if you accept that argument, then you need to accept the argument that we can do the same thing on the economic side. That's exactly right. I think that's that's well 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 stated, and exactly my my point in pointing out one of the greater uh, problems of the logic of the agreement, the argument of the proponents. When we had our hearing with Secretary Liu, uh, Secretary Liu, I asked about the individuals who received relief under the agreement. Uh, and I mentioned in particular Mr. Fakhrizadeh, who has been described by some as the father of the uh, Iranian nuclear program. Uh, the, when I asked why this relief was, was given, uh, I think Secretary Liu's response was something to the effect of, it shows that if you, are, if you do bad acts, if you do bad things, then you'll have consequences. Well, to me, the consequences of this deal is that you're going to get your sanctions lifted. Could you explain what this kind of what this kind of treatment, reaction to uh, people like Fakhrizadeh uh, means in terms of other negotiations that will take place in the future with other nations and other actors who are father of nuclear programs for other rogue and uh, tyrannous regimes. 
Well, it's an amazing message to me that we're effectively lifting sanctions on AQCon, Robert Oppenheimer, the Los Alamos Laboratory, and by the way, a South African German who was the right-hand man of AQCon. I would make one other point. You know, the U.S. government, in six to 12 months, is lifting sanctions on Ali Khamenei's $95 billion financial empire. I mean, there's been no discussion of that. It's amazing to me. We talk a lot about this $100 billion in oil escrow funds. Ali Khamenei was designated in 2013, his, his ICO, the execution of Imam Khomeini's order, a $95 billion holding company. In six to 12 months, OFAC is lifting the designation. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking? I think we need to examine the consequences. Does that mean Ali Khamenei can move $95 billion in liquid assets around the world through the formal financial system, including SWIFT? I mean, to me, that is quite an extraordinary consequences, and I'm just not sure why Treasury decided to lift the designation on essentially on Ali Khamenei's and his $95 billion empire. It, it it's, it's, was my surprise of the week. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, after the Israelis uh, bombed the Osirak reactor outside of Baghdad in 1981, um, I wrote a book called Nuclear Peril, The Politics of Proliferation on that raid, uh, and all of the other proliferation issues that were related to it, that is the US and USSR, uh, Ronald Reagan, et cetera, they were just engaged in a crazy vertical arms race uh, where we weren't making each other safer, we were making each other less safe. MX, Pershing, uh, all the way down the line, and the Soviets were building the same, rec uh, same uh, weapons, and it was crazy. Um, and the point that the Israelis were making is we should focus on the fact that the IAEA is an inadequate safeguard and that uh, the uh, Iraqis at the time were using a civilian nuclear power plant as a cover for a nuclear bomb program. And they were correct in their evaluation of the strength of the IAEA and the real protections which they could build. So the test here is, have we strengthened the IAEA sufficiently? Are we giving them the tools that they need? Are we going to be able to rely upon it as an agency? Because if that's the case, then whether we like it or not, that's what the Non-Proliferation Treaty calls for. And I don't like it, but we have a system. And we just have to ensure that there is, in fact, adequate safeguards in place. So Ambassador Burns, as you look at um, these safeguards and look out to the 2020s, in the 2030s as Iran has a ever-growing civilian, peaceful, quote unquote, nuclear uh, program. How do you view the IAEA and its ability to be able to detect violations uh, going forward? I've listened carefully to Secretary Moniz, who's a fellow resident of our state, and, and I think that he's right in making a convincing case that we, we're gonna have effective line of sight on the existing facilities. I would answer your question by saying the IAEA needs to be strengthened for that second role, which is after 2015, uh, excuse me, after the 15 year, years has expired. 2030, yes. 2030, excuse me, where um, the danger will be a covert program that Iran could elect, not will elect, but could elect to follow. And I think the IAEA will need more resources, a greater number of skilled experience, inspectors, contributions from nation states. There's no question that has to happen. So that's a test then for the P5 plus one 
in every other country in the world. Are we going to give the resources to the IAEA in order to be able to do its job, especially as these years expire uh, and the initial focus, interests of the world begins to recede a little bit? So what confidence do you have that the P5 plus one and others are going to be able to keep their focus and to put those resources in place? It's going to be a test of American leadership. My experience when we created the P5 plus one in December 2005, that was the Bush administration, we were effectively the leader of it. We had the greatest interest. We kind of drove that organization. In an odd sort of way, the Russian government yeah. never deviated from the P5 plus, plus one because it doesn't want Iran to become a nuclear weapons power. China's somewhat disinterested. It's kind of on the margins. So we need to rely on the Russians. That's difficult and need to rely on the Europeans to strengthen that organization. Yeah, and that's always a big question because, you know, President Reagan actually instructed Gene Kirkpatrick in the UN to vote to condemn Israel for what it did. Ronald Reagan, Gene Kirkpatrick, and then they sided with Iraq against Iran in the Iraq-Iran war uh, within just a couple of years. So you're right, going through the years, you have to have some kind of confidence that we're gonna be able to keep a coalition together to be able to keep our eye on the IAEA ball uh, so that we are in fact looking at the real issue, this horizontal proliferation, not vertical, horizontal proliferation. So could you comment upon that, uh, Ambassador Burns? I would, and I think, I think this is the key issue, for me at least, and, I, and Senator, before you came in, I just painted a picture. I think there's real benefits and there's some risks. I think this is a close call. I think the benefits outweigh the risk, but what I'm worried about is can we be effective in implementing the deal, and a lot of that will come down to the inspection and verification regime. Mm -hmm. Some of it, nation states can do. Most of it, the IAEA has to do, and that agency needs financial support, and it needs uh, an increase in its budget, and that's an agency that actually operates on behalf of American interests in trying to sustain the nonproliferation regime. I agree with you because otherwise, if it is ineffective, we wind up spending 100 times more money to deal with the consequences of its um, lack of real teeth. It just becomes a paper tiger, and we wind up spending more money with the collateral consequences of that. So let's, if we can, and I'd like for you to expand a little bit more about what potentially we could do for Israel, for Turkey, for other countries in a regional uh, defense posture uh, to deal with this issue of what Iran might be thinking about and what, in your opinion, the United States should be prepared to do uh, from a conventional perspective uh, in order to ensure that this does not result in a so much more muscular Iran that the price was too high to pay, uh, what would we have to do here in order to make sure that was not the case? Some of the supporters of the nuclear deal not so much in the administration, but outside have said that we should normalize our, in effect, our relationship with Iran. We can work with the Iranians on the Islamic State and other issues. I see it very differently. I think as we pursue the nuclear deal, and I think we should, we need to push back against the Iranians. Two things we can do. President Obama has already started a strengthening of the Gulf cooperation countries, their military capacity, air defense, that kind of thing. We should continue that. The Saudis will be critical and the Emiratis as well in this regard. Secondly, very important with Israel. I think we've got to close the political gap. There's a big public division and it's incumbent upon our government as well as the Israeli government to try to, we're not going to end the disagreement, but try to put it uh, out of public glare because it's weakening both of us. Israel needs a qualitative military edge. It needs advanced military technology. I fear that the Iranians will um, enable Hezbollah and Hamas to test the Israelis again in northern Israel 
and some of those Hezbollah issues, uh, missiles can hit any city in Israel, as well as Hamas in Gaza. We've got to defend Israel and help it defend itself. The 10-year uh, U.S.-Israel military assistance agreement is about to expire in two years. I know that's now being renegotiated. I think we should accelerate those talks and, and really try to narrow the distance between us and give Israel the support it needs. And I agree with you. I, I think that we have to, again, evaluate this deal, looking at the advantages and the defects that may exist in it, and then try to make the best judgment. But no matter what, we have to make sure that Iran fears Israel that uh, Hezbollah fears Israel, that Hamas fears Israel. And we all have to agree on a bipartisan basis that no matter what happens, that that is the one non-negotiable on this issue, because that ultimately is how we'll negotiate from strength in trying to resolve these regional issues where we're pushing people towards the table to find a peaceful resolution uh, of these historic, oftentimes religiously driven uh, differences. So that's, from my perspective, what uh, we have to evaluate as we're going forward. I think we can accomplish that latter goal. Um, and I thank you, Mr. Dubowitz, for your work as well. The chairman was good enough to have you come in and talk to us for two hours, so I apologize for not asking you questions because I had that opportunity in private. But uh, we thank both of you for your service, and we thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. My sense is that uh, Senator Cardin and Senator Menendez have an additional question. I'm just going to ask one, I think. Um, I, I just want to give you a chance to, to rethink uh, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Ambassador, um, the answer that you gave to, uh, to Rubio, I guess, earlier, and that is, do, do you really believe that if Congress kept in place the sanctions that we now have, that the other countries that are involved in this would lift their sanctions regardless of whether Iran complied with this deal or not? That, that didn't ring true to me, but I got. The, but that's what you said, I think, and I just wonder if you want to clarify that to some degree. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Of course, we're talking about hypothetical situations here. But we have to kind of judge this in many ways on hypotheticals, right? I, mean, I understand that's, that. That's unfortunately the character of this. No, you're right. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. You've got to play out these options. That's right. First, um, I think. I think we agree, I agree with Mark, that the human rights and terrorism sanctions should be kept on. No, no, no. Question no. About no, 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 that's not the question. The question is, if we keep the congressionally mandated sanctions we have in place on the nuclear deal, in other words, we're not, the United States it cannot fully implement, I think what you said earlier was that the sanctions regime would fall apart and even if, even if Iran didn't comply with the nuclear deal, the other countries, again, would allow their sanctions regime to fall apart. That doesn't make any sense to me. So you were saying they would be the winner because they could go on with their nuclear program, but the sanctions would be relieved. I just asked the question, why would the other countries alleviate their sanctions if Iran doesn't comply? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I was answering a question, there are a couple of hypothetical questions asked of me. If the United States did not fulfill its requirements, if the Obama administration didn't because Congress was not willing to lift the nuclear-related sanctions, then we would not be in compliance with right. this agreement. I, I think the practical impact of that would be that the sanctions regime would weaken and atrophy and some countries would not adhere to it. And the unit of the P5, I think, would be would be weakened considerably, and the agreement would never go into force, and that would mean that the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program would not be in place. 
And so if that's the scenario that I thought I was res responding to, that's a very negative scenario for us. Would you want to respond to that, Mark? Yeah, Senator Corker, I'm having a, 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 a bit of a difficult time trying to squaring the circle here. So on one hand, Russia and China are at the table for their own strategic interests because they don't want to see a nuclear armed Iran. In addition, we need Russia and Iran and and China to help strengthen the IAEA so that they are an effective check against an Iranian nuclear breakout or sneak out. So the Russians and Chinese are committed to stopping Iran from developing a nuclear weapon, but if Congress votes on a disapproval, Russia and China are going to walk away, go back to business, and allow the Iranians to break out or escalate their nuclear program. I'm having a hard time reconciling that internal contradiction. Either in Russia, so to, to reconcile it, you have to accept one or two arguments. Either the Russians and the Chinese don't care about a nuclear armed Iran and have only been at the table because this diplomacy for them has just been a way to help build up Iranian strength, build up the Iranian nuclear program, and get back to business. Okay? In which case, they haven't been great P5 plus one partners. Or the Russians and Chinese are committed to stopping Iran from developing a nuclear weapon and fundamentally do not want the Iranians to escalate. Now, my view on Russia and China is that I actually believe Russia and China are going to go back to some business with Iran. I, I do. I, I've never actually thought that our sanctions regime depends on Russia and China. The Chinese and the Russians have been violating our sanctions for the past 10 years. I mean, I mean I, and I can walk you through chapter and verse on why that's the case. Well, I, I would get back to first principles on sanctions. The most important sanctions are the U.S. sanctions, the secondary sanctions. The second most important sanctions are the executive branch sanctions, the designations of, of key entities. The third most important sanctions are the EU sanctions. Okay. So that is really the fulcrum of the debate. Will we retain secondary sanctions? Yes. If we have a president willing to enforce executive branch sanctions, will we retain that? Yes. So then the real question is Europe. When it comes to Europe, we're only talking about three essential countries that are three essential economies. Will the Brits or the French and the Germans be with us in these scenarios. And my view is, on the diplomatic side of this, I find it difficult to believe that our three closest allies in Europe are going to walk away from us and facilitate an Iranian nuclear expansion and breakout. I also find it difficult that German, French, and British financial institutions are going to take the risk of secondary sanctions from the United States on their financial institutions by getting back to business with Iran. I think that the, the history of this, the sanctions has shown these financial institutions as market actors respond to market risk. And if they perceive that they can get sanctioned, fined, and shut out of the US financial system if they go back to business with Iran, I don't believe they go back to business with Iran. And so again, just a walking through the logic of this, I believe, yes, Senator Corker, my long answer I would summarize as this. I believe we will retain the Germans, the French, and the Brits in a transatlantic sanctions regime. It will fray around the edges. The Russians, and we may lose the Russians and Chinese with respect to upstream energy investment and some of these other things. But we will have the essential elements of the sanctions regime in place because it's underpinned by powerful US financial sanctions affecting market actors that respond to risk and want to avoid the kind of punishments that have been levied by the US government, the Department of Justice, and other actors. I'm sorry for my long answer. That's fine. Thank you both. We respect you both. It's just a, I, 
I find it hard to believe that the other countries would lift their sanctions and allow Iran to go on with a nuclear program. That That is a scenario I just I, I don't believe would be the case. But again, we all have to make those judgments, and we very much appreciate the input of both of you. Senator Cardin. Well, again, thank you. Thank you to both of our witnesses. And I really appreciate this discussion because this is, I think, the most challenging part of the equation. What happens if Congress rejects the agreement? And what is the likely response of our European allies? I happen to think they're going to want to keep Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power. I think they will work with the United States. But there will be a period in which the United States is going to be isolated. And it does put Iran in a position uh, of being able to test the international resolve again. And uh, there are going to be individual country responses that are hard for us to judge. I agree, uh, Mark, with your comments that the most significant sanctions are the United States sanctions, both the legislative and executive sa sanctions, le legislative imposed and executive initiated sanctions, uh, and then Europe comes second. And, Therefore, uh, what happens in Europe is going to be of most significance. But there will be individual countries, and there will be leakage, and there will be impact. I want to get uh, to um, the reimposing of sanctions that are uh, forgiven under the or waived under the uh, nuclear agreement under the JCPOA uh, for uh, non-nuclear activities. And we got into a pretty good discussion, and there, there are three categories here. One is, can we reimpose against an institution that's received relief under the JCPOA? Second, can we do sectorial um, sanctions in sectorial areas that have been given relief under the JCPOA? And the third is, can we extend our own law that Senator Menendez uh, was, was commenting? Each of those questions were specifically asked of Secretary Liu during the hearing last Thursday. And in case one and two, he said very clearly the answer is yes, we can, if the circumstances justify that. That was his response. On the third, he gave a very interesting response. He said, depends on timing. I don't know what that means. He said, if we were to try to do it now, it would not be, it would be a breach of the agreement, but if we wait closer to the 2016 date, it would be understood. At least that's my interpretation of the answer I got from Secretary Liu. But then we read the agreement, and we see clauses in the agreement that gives us reason for concern. You know, we're supposed to normalize our relations, trade relations with, with Iran. We're not supposed to reimpose the sanctions that we took off. Uh, and so it's not quite as clear in the document. Now, I must tell you, I don't pay a lot of attention from the point of view of the legal significance of what Iran says in its communications. Uh, it's interesting to read, and it just shows we can't trust them. We've got to make sure that we have enforceable documents. But the question is very important that the chairman raised at the Thursday hearing that the, the Senator Menendez and I both have raised, and that is, well, it's fine to know what the United States intends to do, but do we have four of the eight, uh, five of the eight votes? Do we, how, how, how is uh, Europe going to respond to what the United States does? Uh, we know that China and, and, and uh, Russia are going to be difficult. We know Iran's going to be opposed. But what type of international support and what type of intimidation will there be to U.S. initiatives to 
impose sanctions when terrorist activities escalate as a result of Iran's increased capacity. And here, Mr. Chairman, I really do think we need clarification. As I said, we're on day nine. We still have some time left. I really do think we need clarification from the administration and our negotiating partners as to uh, uh, what our options are. Let me, let me tell you, let me just say, I don't think there'll be any hesitation by Congress to uh, enhance sanctions against Iran if their terrorist activities increase. There may be some reluctancy by any administration. We know that in diplomacy, there's always uh, uh, the negotiating with our partners and, and stakeholder interests and, and what we do. But I do think we should look for a way to clarify this point uh, in, uh, with not just comments from our administration, but from our negotiating partners. And Chairman, I hope we can figure out a way that we can perhaps follow through on that point. The, the second point I want to make, uh, Ambassador Burns, I thought you were, raised a very important point about the secure, regional security commitments by the United States, and we shouldn't wait. And we really should be talking about how do we underscore the security needs of Israel and the Gulf states that we have strategic partnerships with, and that should be pretty specific and clarified so that there's no misunderstanding at all in the region as to what our security commitments will be. Uh, and Iran needs to know that up front. So I think that was a very important point, and I may want to follow up with some specific suggestions that you made as to how we could perhaps follow up on, on that particular point. Senator Menendez and Senator Johnson. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. You know, I would agree with the ranking member's assessment, except I would have a different view as to the conclusion uh, with Secretary Liu. I, I think I did test the proposition with the administration, because I actually said at one point, so you want the sanctions to lapse. And he never said, no, that's not what we want. And when I asked him about specifically, you either have the right to reauthorize them or you don't. Timing is maybe a, a question of for uh, political or other purposes, but either you have the right to reauthorize existing sanctions or you don't. And from my perspective of being, you know, and the language, yes, it is a letter and it's not the agreement, but what I was reading the day that we had the hearing was the agreement. I didn't even know about this letter then. So I look at the agreement and the wording of the agreement is what flagged for me the concern that led to that line of questioning. That was pretty clear to me that he never said, yes, at some point we need to reauthorize this. When I said, suggesting that he lapse, that he could have said, no, 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 that's not, I'm not, I'm not agreeing that we, shouldn't, that we should let it lapse. So I take the composite of that testimony and the Joint uh, Comprehensive Plan of Actions language, and now I further buttress it with the letter of the Iranian intent, and it says to me, we, we've got a problem as it relates to continuing existing sanctions. Now, those sanctions could be suspended by the administration. I'm not talking about altering the nature of the existing sanction regime we have. I'm talking about just taking it sure. and reauthorizing it. Some people would want to actually diminish the president's uh, you know, waivers authorities. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just simply saying taking what it is. And I read both the agreement and the statements of the secretary to say they don't support that. That's a problem because you have to snap back to something. The other thing I'm concerned about, you know, I look at what this committee did uh, when we authorized the use of force 
uh, for the issue of Syria as it relates to its chemical weapons. And we heralded and heard the administration. As a matter of fact, in March, Secretary Kerry said, we cut a deal and we were able to get all the chemical weapons out of Syria in the middle of the conflict. Well, I'm concerned about that one year after that celebration uh, of removing uh, Syria's arsenal, that U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that the regime didn't give up all the chemical weapons it was supposed to, and that the whole process by which inspectors were allowed to pursue, uh, again, is going to be a narrative of what we're going to have as it relates to our ability to have inspectors pursue Iran in this, in this case. Inspectors, you know, Iran, Syria specified uh, what access to its, that it would give access to its declared weapon sites, much as Iran is expected to give UN inspectors unfettered access to its own declared sites. But for any undeclared sites, inspectors could request access provided they furnish information of their suspicions giving the regime plenty of time uh, to move, deceive, uh, and hide. And uh, you listen to one of the inspectors in Syria and they said they couldn't afford to antagonize their hosts uh, in order to uh, not lose access to all the sites. So this is a recent pastor's prologue. And so it concerns me about our enforcement mechanism moving forward. Um, and then finally, what I do want to pick your brains on, and you've both been very, uh, uh, you know, in-depth in, in your thoughts, and I appreciate it. But let me ask you this. Let's assume, for argument's sake, that the deal had not been consummated. Would we be going to war right now? Well, I think the answer to that is you, you should ask the administration, if you can, to provide to you in disclosure what their contingency plan was when they went into the negotiations what alternatives they were considering and how they had fully developed those alternatives because to go into negotiation without fully developing your alternatives uh, would be a mistake. I think we would all agree and I'm sure the administration has done a lot of work and has fully developed alternatives, Senator Menendez, apart from war. And so if they hadn't developed alternatives, I think we should be disturbed. If they had developed alternatives, we should find out if those alternatives only included war. And if they didn't only include war, then the administration, in claiming now that there's no alternative to this deal but war, is actually contradicting the very contingency plans that they built into the negotiation. Ambassador Burns, would we be going to war? I don't think that war is an inevitable consequence of the deal falling apart. I know some people have made the argument, if the deal falls apart, or if Congress disapproves, we're going to get war. I don't think... I don't follow that logic. It all depends on what the Iranians decide to do. Right. I think they're smarter than to try to provoke a military attack by the U.S. or Israel. So I would think if the deal fell apart, if Congress disapproved, if a veto was overridden, I would think we'd probably end up with an Iran as a nuclear threshold state. They would go ahead on their uranium and plutonium, but I'm not sure they'd cross the line towards a nuclear weapon and therefore almost assuredly invite a response by either Israel or the United States. And very quickly, Senator, I think you're right to focus on the IAEA. In a way, the real enforcement arm is the United States. Mm -hmm. If there's a clear violation, if there's a covert facility de uh, detected by the IAEA, the only country that can do anything about it is the U.S. and maybe a few of our allies. And I'm concerned about that because uh, another independent witness, David Albright, has been before the committee several times, and I think the chairman has invited him back. 
has said at different times, every time that Iran has had a violation, we seem to find a way to excuse it. And Iran has a history here uh, of deceit, deception, delay, that has brought us to this point that we are now accepting things, uh, those who, <clears throat> who believe the agreement is the right agreement, that we are now accepting things we would have never envisioned accepting. And so it, uh, the one thing I took away, among other things, uh, from you, Ambassador Burns, is that having a very strong response to violations is going to be critically important. But so far, our precedent here on that has not been particularly strong. You know, I, 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 if you can argue a, a case both ways, it's fantastic if you can get away with it. But it's either one or the other. Now, you know, the secretary was here and he said, Iran has uh, the Ayatollah has issued a fatwa, which is basically a religious decree that, in fact, uh, you know, there can be no nuclear arms because that's a violation of their religious beliefs. Iran has consistently argued that they have been and are only interested in a peaceful civilian nuclear program. So if that's the case, then, and the secretary is advocating as part of his overall argument about the fatwa and mentions it as part of the element, well, then why would we presume that Iran is going to rush to a nuclear weapon immediately if there isn't a fulfillment of the agreement uh, as envisioned? So I think that's, that's you know, I, I don't buy, and I appreciate the honest answers from both of you, is that it isn't war necessarily automatically. Uh, because that is the proposition that, that is being painted. And finally, I, I, I would say, you know, this uh, basically, we, we think about the out years. The reality is in about a year, Iran's going to get most of its sanctions relief, assuming they comply with the initial implementation. And so in year two, three, or four, you know, forget about eight or 10 or 15, the regime determines that whatever's happening in the Gulf region, that they, in fact, that preservation of the revolution and the regime is best ensured by having a nuclear weapon. So let's say they decide to break the agreement and move forward, just for argument's sake. At that point, though, what we will be facing is the same choices that we allegedly have today. And the reality is, however, I don't think it's quite the same choice, Mr. Chairman, because you will have an Iran that is economically resurgent, an Iran that will have taken care of some of its domestic, not all, but some of its domestic challenges, an Iran that will have 100 and $150 billion. And let's assume that it isn't all, it's not going to be all spent on terrorism, but take 5% of it. If Iran that is reeling from economic sanctions today and falling oil prices is willing to engage in the Houthis in Yemen, in Hezbollah, in Lebanon, in propping up Assad in Syria and creating mischief in Iraq far different than our national interests in Iraq with the sources they have now, when they're flush with money, when we talk about war, I'm really concerned about a regional conflict that emanates from that. So it's in this balance of things that I think, you know, some of these, what I, what I don't care for is the proposition that it's either this or war. Because you can't argue it both ways. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to explore that with the witnesses. Senator Menes, can I ask one, just one point? I actually do think there will become a point in time where it will be, our only option will be military force. 
I mean, I, I, I'm going to be as bold as to suggest that. And, and you know, this is, again, we're scenario planning. And, and I've tried to, to the best of my ability in my written testimony, which is excessively long, and I apologize for that. But in the 43 pages, I've tried to work through these scenarios to try and understand this. And, and it would be useful to work through these scenarios, I think, with, with others. But my, my worst case scenario is that, as you've described, a much stronger Iran, a much more economically resilient Iran, Iran with conventional and regional power, and an Iran with an industrial-sized nuclear program, a near-zero breakout with an easier clandestine sneak-out, where breakout time is now a matter of days, I have a very hard time figuring out how do you use economic sanctions to stop that Iran. And if you don't have economic sanctions to stop that Iran, then you really only have military force, or you concede. And so my concern with this deal is that the very structure of the deal, the way it's architected, positions Iran at that point where we will actually have to use military force against an Iran that will be much stronger, and the consequences will be much more severe. And that is why, again, just pointing out to maybe for the fifth time, and I apologize, for me that this isn't about walking away from the deal. This isn't about blowing up a deal. This isn't about going back to no enrichment. This is about some simple amendments to the deal. I say simple, I understand how complicated they will be to negotiate. But one of the fundamental amendments is on the sunset provision. I, I give Ambassador Burns a lot of credit. I helped negotiate UN Security Council Resolution 1737, which is the policy of the US government. And, the, and they're in that resolution, it specifically uh, prohibits a sunset provision. And it's a very interesting language. We, 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 at that point, under the Bush administration, made it very explicit that the, there would not be an artificial time-delineated sunset. And so, yes, this is complicated. It's messy. But we should insist on that one amendment, the way Henry Jackson in the 1970s insisted on amendments, the way that we've insisted on, U.S. Congress has insisted on amendments for its history. I think that would make a fundamental difference. And if it did, we may not be in the position where we're going to have to use military force against a hardened target and a massive nuclear program. I know Senator Johnson's uh, about ready to roll here and has been waiting a while, but if you want to make one comment, uh, Ambassador Burns, but I'm turning it over to Johnson, and his time will start after you finish. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very briefly, and excuse me, Mr. Johnson, um, I just want to say I agree that we cannot argue that war is a logical consequence if Congress disapproves. I agree with that. I also don't think, however, we can just assume that war is inevitable at the end of the 15 years. Much will depend on us. There is strategic threats, strategic deterrence that the U.S. has a lot of history in being involved in. We're going to have to be skillful at that. So I, I don't want to accept that somehow war is the only consequence of this deal. I don't agree with that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If Senator Menendez would just stick around two seconds, because I want to put a few numbers to the stronger Iran, because you know, we hear, and I'll, I'll ask Mr. Dubois about this later, but we hear somewhere between 50 and $150 billion. Now, you know, here in America, that just doesn't seem like very much. But if that's 12, $50 billion is 12% of Iran's, Iran's economy right now. That'd be the equivalent of over $2 trillion pumped into our own economy. For the $150 billion level, that's 36%. That'd be like $6.3 trillion of the American economy. So right now, Iran's economy is about $415 billion. And we see the, you know, the, the, the instability they're sowing in the region at that level. Th this is an e enormous 
uh, boost to their economy. And that's, that's, that's why we're concerned about a stronger, star, stronger Iran with uh, this deal. But anyway, I just wanted to put some numbers on that for you. Uh, Mr. Dubowitz, um, the first time we did meet, we talked about the Iranian sanctions. And I, I kind of came away from that initial meeting is, yes, these sanctions were putting a real hurt on Iran, but they were nowhere near as, as strong as, as they were kind of talked about, or that certainly what you'd be recommending. Can, can you just kind of talk about that? Because the number I have is in 2013, Iran's economy was about $558 billion. In 2014, it was $415 billion. That's a 25% drop, I and mean, that's, that's a lot of hurt. But can you just kind of talk about back then, and we'll, we'll start moving forward then. The key number that we've been focused on is um, Iran's foreign exchange reserves and, and their ability to withstand a severe balance of payments crisis. It was our assessment in the middle of 2013 that Iran was four to six months away from a severe balance of payments crisis. In other words, the kind of economic crisis that in notional terms could have collapsed the economy. Why that Iran avoided that because the administration blocked at the time the Menendez-Kirk bill de-escalated the sanctions pressure, and then entered into the JPOA negotiations and gave $11.9 billion in direct relief, as well as sparking a modest economic recovery. And, and again, I mean, in terms of numbers, I mean, we, we focus on the 100, 150 billion, which we can talk about. Under this deal, Iran will, will be able to sell oil. They were, if they return to pre-sanctions levels of 2.5 million barrels a day, they'll make $40 billion a year just selling oil. So over the lifetime of the agreement, the years we're concerned about, that's $400 billion by year 10, and that's, um, and that's $600 billion by year 15. I mean, when you talk about how Iran will restore its economy, I think we need to look at those numbers, and I'll just say one final point. Iran won't spend its money just on terrorism. Iran won't spend its money just on economic growth. Iran will spend its money ensuring economic resilience. They will not make the mistake they made last time. They will have a rainy day fund of foreign exchange reserves. And it'll be, if I were Iran, it would be of sufficient size that it would provide me an ability to withstand any kind of sanctions pressure you can throw at me in the future. So, so we really are strengthening Iran. We, we started the, you know, this discussion thinking it was about $150 billion. The administration came back, said, no, it's really 59, then 56. What, what is your evaluation of, of what the initial injection is just based on when they, when they first meet those, that requirement? First of all, I don't understand the administration's logic here. What they're saying is that there are approximately $100 billion in these escrow accounts, but a certain percentage of that, China has committed to upstream energy projects. I think, I don't know if they remember the number, is about $20 billion or so. But the administration is saying Iran is going to spend that $100 billion on strengthening its economy. Well, what is an investment in an upstream energy project? It's strengthening your economy. Right. So why are you excluding the $20 billion when your own logic suggests that that is to be used to strengthen the economy? So you've got to add that money back if that is your logic. If your argument is they're going to spend it on terrorism, then you're right. The $20 billion is not available for terrorism because it's available for upstream Chinese investment, but they're saying their money won't be spent on terrorism. So once again, I, I'm having a hard time squaring the circle in the logic here, Senator. You know, I've been reasonably vocal, you know, saying that this administration lost these negotiations really before they ever began by, you know, first of all, acknowledging uh, Iran's right to enrich uranium when I think UN resolutions are pretty, pretty clear that, no, in order for sanctions to be lifted, you have to suspend or halt your uranium enrichment. And the whole point of the negotiation really should have been to 
require them to dismantle, you know, as was required of South Africa and Libya. Um, so you acknowledge that right, and then you also start lifting the sanctions, which really starts getting everybody in the world uh, pretty excited about being able to start investing in Iran, okay? Start selling them, them dollars. So I, I don't know at what, I mean, where do you go with the negotiation at that point in time? How, how do you win that one when you've virtually given Iran what they wanted? Uh, again, not all the sanctions relief, but a pretty clear path that you're signaling that they're going to get it. And I mean, is that, that's my evaluation. Is that kind of how you saw the thing as well? Sure. Well, that's why you end up with a short-term nuclear suspension for a long-term economic sanctions dismantlement, which is what this deal is. I mean, if you give up your most valuable concession at the beginning of the negotiation on enrichment, and then you spend all your time negotiating the number of IR-1 centrifuges that are going to be left at Natanz, right, you've, then the Supreme Leader is going to flip that on you. He's going to finally give up on the number of IR-1 centrifuges at Natanz, but he's going to do that only in exchange for the, his most valuable concessions, dismantle sanctions. I want sunset provisions so the restrictions disappear. I want advanced centrifuge R&D because I never really cared about the IR-1s, even though I pretended I did. And I'm going to end up negotiating the kind of deal the Supreme Leader negotiated, right, where essentially he, he has taken a concession that we thought was so valuable for him, to him because he overvalued it in public, and he did that so that he could trade it away at the end for the concessions that actually were most valuable to him. So that was, that was the problem of the negotiations, and it's a problem in the fundamental architecture of this deal. So, so the very sanctions that this administration resisted, that they, in the end, gave credit to for bringing Iran to the table and producing this deal, I mean, they, they definitely opposed. They did bring Iran to the table, but they were relaxed right away. You, you've just testified that they were, Iran was very close to, to really being put in a position where they would have had to negotiate in good faith. I mean, can you just describe that? Well, Senator, I'm not sure if they would negotiate it in good faith, but I am suggesting that if Iran was facing a severe balance of payments crisis where they were literally on the verge of economic collapse, I, I think it's fair to say the United States would have had more leverage. Now, whether we would have translated that leverage into a better deal, I can't say. It's, it's counterfactual history. I am suggesting that I think, and I think you know, the U.S. Congress, I think, has been very clear on this over the past couple of years. I think that we made a mistake in not ratcheting up the pressure and increasing our leverage. And, and my fear is that the Iranians came to the table for one fundamental reason. Yes, they were under pressure. They came to the table because we offered, to, we offered them a huge concession to come to the table. And the huge concession, Senator, is exactly the one you've underscored. It was, we abandoned decades of US policy, and we gave them an enrichment capability. So my, my point being is that's where the position they were in. And I, I agree with you. Is you can't force That doesn't, wouldn't guarantee they'd come in good faith. We, were certain, we certainly had a whole lot more leverage. We were in a far better negotiating position then than we were at the tail end of this deal. Is there any way we can get ourselves back to that negotiating position? I mean, my, my evaluation is no. Uh, I just want to hear your comment on that. I mean. In other words, snapback sanctions. That, that's a fantasy, isn't it? Well, snapback sanctions are a fantasy. Uh, you know, can we get back to the same uh, negotiating position we were two years ago or two and a half years ago? Not immediately. And I mean, in the scenarios that I lay out, I, I'm not trying to look at this with rose-colored glasses. My whole approach to the Middle East is expect the worst and be surprised on the upside. Don't expect the best 
and then be devastated on the downside. So I, I'm trying to be realistic in the scenario planning. It'll be messy, I think, as, as Ambassador Burns and I um, both acknowledge. But I do think that we have the ability to retain sufficient leverage. And if past is prologue, and, this, and, the, and the Cold War, I think, serves as a good example, we are capable of negotiating better agreements, amended agreements, with hardened adversaries. And you know, when I look at Iran, and I compare today's Iran to the Soviet Union with thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles aimed at US cities, you know, Senator Jackson was willing to go back to the Nixon administration and say, I want a better deal. And, I've, and there are countless examples of that in the Cold War. But again, with investment dollars starting to flow in from our negotiating partners, it's going to be pretty difficult to get them on board with another uh, round of sanctions that would actually put ourselves back in the point where we could actually do a good deal, where we could actually demand dismantlement, where, where we could actually force Iran to be less dangerous. I, I, as I've testified, I, I think that we will maintain the efficacy of U.S. secondary sanctions, executive brand sanctions, and I do not believe we're going to lose the Europeans. I believe on the essential core sanctions, the financial sanctions, that, that Europe has passed with us, and more importantly, that Europe fears from us, we will maintain that leverage. Will we maintain it right away? Will we have the same leverage right away? No, it'll take another president working closely with Congress to, to restore our leverage and enhance the leverage over time. But to me, that is a better alternative, Senator, than ultimately providing a patient pathway to a near-zero nuclear breakout and a clandestine sneakout. And just to reiterate, an Iran that will be hardened against that kind of snapback in 10 to 15 years, where I fear, maybe more than Ambassador Burns, um, that we will only have the ability to use military force to stop this program. Now, maybe we disagree. I believe in preemption, not containment. If we are in containment mode, then we're in a whole different universe. But I still believe it's the policy of the U.S. government to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I want to thank you both. Uh, for your testimony and for being here so long and waiting for us while we voted. Um, without objection, uh, the record will be open until Friday. If you would, please respond uh, as rapidly as you can to those questions. But uh, we respect both of you very much. I know that uh, both of you understand the complexities of this, and one of you has ended up on one side and one on the other. Uh, and uh, it's the type of testimony that you've given today that I think makes this uh, a, a difficult decision for many. So thank you very much for being here. Thank, thank, thank you, Senator Carter. Thank you very much, Chairman. Thank you.